a time of increasing skepticism of globalization, stemming from losses in jobs, cultural heritage, and sovereignty over one's own homeland, nationalism has reemerged onto the political stage in protest movements and increasingly populist governments. Christian nationalism focused on the incorporation of church doctrine into a nation and often a sovereign is not a new concept, stemming at least from the time of the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, but recently has re-emerged as a potential solution to the social ills many societies face in the West. Tonight we are joined by Woe, co-host of the Stone Choir podcast, to make the case for how and why this might be a good way forward for many of the discontented souls of today. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hockey. It's been ideal. Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Today we are joined by a very special guest by the name of Woe. He comes from a podcast called Stone Choir. I've listened to it. I'd recommend it. It's quite good. Uh, he comes from the Lutheran Church. I will let him get into the details of what denomination and synod and all that stuff because I am definitely not an expert on that. But on this show, we like to talk to anybody who's like got something good to say. And I think they, uh, they have a really good show. And that was pretty much the basis of why we wanted to talk. It was suggested actually by a listener that we have uh, somebody from Stone Choir on. Uh, I know, whoa, you have a co-host, Corey. Um, I've not spoken to him, but I've, uh, I know people who know him. And so, yeah, within these circles, I, you know, it's funny, like, you know, six degrees of separation of Kevin Bacon or whatever the equivalent is for us, th- three degrees of separation from fill in the blank, but um, here we are. So welcome. Um, thanks for uh, coming on and uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your show. Yeah. Thank you for the invite. Uh, Corey and I are, we're very similar in a lot of ways and we're very different in others. I mean, we pretty much agree on everything, but we approach things from different perspectives. So if he had come on instead of me, we would say very differently the same things. Uh, it's weird how similar we are despite being, you know, we, we have a lot of bizarre similarities in our personal lives and stuff. I am a lifelong Missouri Synod Lutheran. I'm, American. Uh, my you know, family's been here over 400 years. I originally started talking just you know, about politics on Twitter in the right wing right wing spheres six seven years ago, and I started talking more about religion just because as I saw guys who were not religious coping with the world, I started realizing that you know, politics obviously matters because it's what you know we live or buy but die by those things, but. I realized that there were things about Christianity and specifically about my Lutheran upbringing 
that I thought I could bring to bear on the conversation that would explain things that in the political sphere don't make sense. So I, I'm well-versed in both. Like I'm not just a church guy, but I spend most of my time now worrying about that because my concern is that I'm in a political sphere. You have guys who are looking at the problems in the world. And then in the church sphere, sphere we have pastors who are just kind of focused exclusively on religious stuff and not seeing that there's an intersection where we should find common ground. And I don't want to see those two spheres at odds with each other, because I think the good ends that we all share have common, we have a common path to get there. And if, if my concern is cleaning house in the church, because if, if guys are looking at the state of the world and thinking, well, I know there's evil, but when I look at these churches, I see more of the same. I want to fix that so that I can, in good conscience, invite guys to church and not have them get doxxed like I was by my own church. So there, there's a lot there. Do you have uh, any particular examples that come to mind when it comes to things like connecting real life to spiritual life or life outside of church with church or what the Bible or Lutheranism teaches? And then there's also addressing maybe corruption within the church that these seem to be the two main topics you were bringing up. Is that kind of what your show focuses on, uh, first of all, and then do you have any particular examples maybe we could use to introduce people to your show? A lot of what we talk about on stone choir is really in a lot of ways, it's kind of stuff that we've all seen on poll and we've seen, you know, 4chan and HN. It's, it's stuff that, in the secular sphere, when guys are just working through race, religion as it intersects with politics, like all these controversial things, all the things, the ists and the isms that get people canceled. As I started looking at those things from a more Christian perspective, I realized that they're not at odds. And so a lot of what we cover on the show is a mix of stuff that's it's kind of a Bible study sometimes. And other times it's just kind of like we did a five episode, a five episode series on race. We did one episode talking about race as it exists specifically in scripture to point out that what we see in the world scientifically, what we see in DNA is not at odds with what the Bible says. We did one on uh, IQ. We did one on race uh, statistics related to violence. And one of the reasons we did that was that one of the big pushes in kind of the global Christian church today is the Africanization of the church. And in including within the LCMS, they just finished the uh, triennial uh, synodical convention this past week. And one of their big pushes in something they've been talking about for years is that white people are going away. They're being replaced by Africans. This is wonderful we're bringing them in, we're talking about Jesus, and then the church is just going to keep going on because there's so many more Africans. And that bothers me for a number of reasons. One, this is America. This isn't Africa. <laughs> I want Americans to succeed here. And yeah, what a thought. Start thinking, <laughs> yeah, you know, and there's stuff in the Bible about that, too. Like, they're in the Old Testament, when God sends foreigners to devour your things, that's judgment. That's punishment. It's not a blessing to have foreigners overrun your country. Mm -hmm. And there is such a thing as a foreigner. So, like, you know, there, there are things that in politics you have one viewpoint. And then these guys in the church, these, these men who have never looked at the stuff, because 
one of the problems the church has is that these weren't issues in the Reformation. You know, a lot of the theology outside of Roman Catholicism was really developed in the 16th century, and we just kind of didn't touch it because, frankly, there aren't really enough smart people left to go in and do new analyses of these things. And, you know, I, I obviously believe in the supernatural. I believe that Satan is real, and he's not stupid. He hmm. changed tacks. In, in the 16th century, the Reformation was largely about justification. What is our relationship to God, and how do we get to heaven? That has changed. The, the attack today is attacking creation, attacking how man and woman are made, attacking whether or not race exists at all, attacking whether or not God puts people in certain places and puts borders around them, which is something that's in the Bible. You know, so there, there are different places in Scripture where God says something. The world sees how things have always been, and most men in the church have just never thought about this stuff. So there's no, there's no repository of good, sound theological analysis of these problems, and it's killing us. So this brings to mind a lot of things, actually, but the, the example of the Africanization, I've, I've brought this up a couple times to people who are Catholic or Orthodox or wh whatever, basically Christians, and they are... If we're talking to me, especially on the internet, um, usually it's like, okay, we all agree on these types of things. But the question always comes up, why do the churches disagree with us? And I, I have a poll, actually, um, from actually three sources, three different polls. And they're, they're, they're basically like, why do people leave churches? Because I can tell you, one of the last times I went to church... It wasn't the last time, but it was one of the churches that I went to that I don't go to. Um, they did exactly this. It was basically a a weird um, nativity display or something like that. All the kids like were all like dressed as somebody from a biblical story, and they had like shot a video about how they were on some pilgrimage to send goods to people in Africa. And it was, uh, you know, oh, these people get a cow through your, through your efforts and all this stuff. And I'm like, why is this the focus? Like, I mean, I, I, I live in a small town where people actually, there are wealthy people, but there's also a lot of really poor working class people. You could focus on them or you could focus on Africa. I get it. Like you, you have different goals, but it's strange. And then I, I didn't particularly care for that prioritization. And then I, talked to another guy who actually came on our show and he said the same thing. It was like the last time he went to that particular church. I don't know if he's ever gone back to church at all, but that turned him off. And then there are other people that leave churches because of this stuff. And here's what one of the polls says. This is from Western Europeans and who stopped identifying with religion, quote, gradually drifted away among other reasons. But the, the top reason is, um, Yes, gradually drifted away 68%. Next, disagreeing with their religion's positions on social issues, 58%. No longer believing in their religion's teachings, 54%. Being unhappy about the scandals involving religious institutions and leaders, 53%. Spiritual needs not being met, 26%. Religious, religion, okay, the rest of them are pretty, pretty minor. Okay, here's another poll, reason for leaving religion. Um, you stop believing in the religion's teachings. Uh, that's at 60%. 
uh, the rest of them are kind of low. And then the last poll says top five reasons church dropouts say they stopped attending church. The top one there, and these aren't as high as the other ones, but this is the top one, 34%. I moved to college and stopped attending church. Okay, we can skip that one. Uh, church members seem judgmental or hypocritical. I didn't feel connected to people in my church, 29%. So there's like a million different reasons in there. Maybe you could sort it out. Like, what, what do you think is going on here? Uh, whoa. Why do people sort of disagree with basically what the church is about today? And then does the church care? I, I, it seems bizarre to me. I think that the overarching theme, particularly in that first set of responses, was really undergirded by hypocrisy. That goes back to what, what you were saying about when you were in that congregation and they just seemed focused on far away and not the local neighborhood, the local community. The etymology of hypocrisy actually has to do with like acting. It, it's, it's wearing one face that's not your own. Uh, and I think that's what, even if someone doesn't know much or anything about Christianity, you have a sense that it should look a certain way. It should behave a certain way, it, and obviously it should be it should be oriented around neighbor. That's, I think people that don't know much about Christianity probably still have heard about the Good Samaritan, which is a, it's a parable about a man who was beaten and robbed and left to die on the side of the road, and two men walked right by and didn't want to do anything to help, right. and then it was a Samaritan who came and helped him, and. Today, churches want to say, oh, well, look, it was crossing racial boundaries, and there was a Samaritan helping, and the Jews weren't, and so it's it's all about interracial harmony. The actual lesson from that was that the Samaritan saw the, the broken and beaten man right in front of him, mm. and they were neighbors in that moment. And so neighbor, it's one of the things that I, we complain about on Stone Choir more than once. I go after Mr. Rogers, which <laughs> is upset some people, but like— the Mr. Rogers notion Good. that neighbor. I want to know the this... truth about Fred Rogers. Here we go. <laughs> Did, was he actually like a it Marine a... or something like that? Or had tattoos, full, full body. <laughs> that was like a rumor when I was like growing up. He was actually like some kind of killer. And then he like saw the light or something. <laughs> that, Bob Ross was the, the uh, painting guy. Was really? a drill sergeant in the Air Force. Okay. <laughs> but Fred Rogers, like he was a really nice guy, but the, he inserted into our culture the notion that you can be my neighbor if I like you, which is completely destroys the word neighbor. Mm. Neighbor no longer means anything if it's just, oh, I like you. Won't you be my neighbor? Well, I don't know. Are you going to move in next door? That's what neighbor means. Yeah. And so the, the purpose of the parable was to say, look, the guy right in front of you is the one you help. It doesn't matter what race he is. It doesn't matter if you like him. If someone is in need and they're in front of you, that is a person God wants you to help, which to your point about what you saw in that, in that church, they were more concerned about people who are far away. There's actually a passage in first Timothy five that specifically says that it says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the face and is worse than an unbeliever. It's specifically talking about material things. It's not talking about sharing faith or anything. It's like, it's specifically talking about widows in that case. If there's people in your family who need materially and you don't take care of them you're going to hell and so everything that has been done within the church is externalizing all of our love while neglecting what's right in front of us and it's why you know the lcms is excited about replacing 
the 95% white people in the denomination with foreigners. They think that it's great. They're 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 ashamed that it's one of the whitest denominations in the do, country. Do they do they really think though that they're actually replacing the ninety five percent, and then that you know the the next ninety five percent you know in the next version of this church is is going to be from Africa, and then five percent are I guess like white, or do they really think that it's more like there's always going to be a ton of white people, and maybe they're just not very good at math, but they're like well they'll just be some Africans now, but it'll still be like, you know, what we grew up with. That's my less like, uh, I don't know if the cynical is the right word, but I, I, I maybe give them some of the benefit of the doubt that maybe they're just not really thinking very hard about this as opposed to they have some kind of overarching plan to replace white people because they're probably white. And I, I just, I compare this to the older generations. They just take that for granted as that's what America is and probably assume it will always be that way. And that's clearly not going to be the case looking at trends, but, and it's already the case. If you look at young kill, uh, children and kids, uh, they're majority non-white. So demographics is destiny. And that is uh, sort of not arguable, but typically these people are older in my experience. Do you think that they're just kind of clueless or do they actually want to change this? Do they know what they're actually doing? They do. It's very conscious. They're very explicit about it. In fact, the, it was either day one or day two of the LCMS convention this past week. Wow. There was an LCMS missionary in Germany. You know, I'm Lutheran. We're Lutherans. They were founded in 1847 from Saxon immigrants in, in around St. Louis. Lutheranism is historically German. This right. missionary got up of on course, stage yeah. and he was excited to say that only 5% of Germans today attend church. And that's been collapsing. 5%. Why is he excited know, about that? White, because Iranians and Turks are moving <laughs> en masse. And he, he spent the time talking about how they're functionally an NGO. He, he was bragging about the fact that they are coaching, he, he said Persian, but I'm sure that there are Turks as well. He mm -hmm. said, we have these these crypto-Christians in in Iran that we're coaching to, to achieve uh, refugee status. We teach them how to get past the interviews so they can become Germans, and they're going to be the future of the German church. And he specifically contrasted the invasion of Iranians. And again, he didn't talk about Turks because he knew better, because in the Lutheran confessions, it explicitly condemns the Turks as a hereditary enemy. That's wow. the word that's used. Now, you know, it's referring to Muslims, but that's the thing. In, in Scripture, race and religion are aligned. One of the problems with Israel was that whenever they were going around foreign people— they were adopting foreign religions, foreign gods, right? And so it's it's part and parcel. So yeah, no, it's it, it's very conscious. There's so there's a lot more I could say about, but no, it's it's you would think that like that's the charitable view. Okay, these boomers know what they're doing. So I, then I the next question the is why are they? Don't they have children? I mean, like, do they not care about their kids' future? Like, I don't understand the mentality with this. They don't what is see their what, what is their reason? I mean, they must see some kind of benefit. Like, I don't I don't believe anybody does anything unless they think it's a good choice. So, in their mind, why is this the best choice they they're making? Because the church is growing. I mean, is that it? Like, I, I don't know. 
part of it is that it's rooted in egalitarian enlightenment blank slate theology, which is not theology. It's, it's not Christian at all. But these are boomers who believe in the blank slate. They think that these tabula rasa souls are getting deposited all over the world and everyone is just completely interchangeable. It's one of the points that, that we made in the IQ episode is that below a certain IQ threshold, you can't understand things like conditional hypotheticals. And if you look at theology, there are a lot of hypotheticals in theology. How am I saved? I, you have to think about the future. You know, Even the concept of the future is beyond people below a certain IQ threshold. And that includes the vast majority of Africa. And so you and I know this, your listeners know this. I think most people listening probably are familiar with that stuff. Nobody in the church knows it or believes it. And when men like me say, well, you know, I appreciate the principle of wanting to Christianize everyone. I, I share that. Absolutely. I want everyone in the world to be Christian. But someone having faith and someone being able to propagate the faith are two different things. And when you have a continent of people with an IQ of 70 on average, they're never going to be anything more than wards for caring Christian rulers who share the faith and then deal with them, but they can't self-propagate. And so these guys believe that, you know, it's racism that's caused Africa to be poor. And so, you know, the, the big push is let's fix racism. Let's make everyone equal the way God made us. And then everything's going to be fine. And so they absolutely believe that we're fungible. Uh, the, the president of the Missouri Synod regularly brags about the fact that his granddaughter mm. has more African DNA than German DNA. Oh because one of his sons buried, married a black girl, the other one married uh, a Hispanic girl. They're the whitest black and Mexican girls I've ever seen. Like they... They did well for themselves as far as you know marrying non-white girls, but he doesn't care. He's excited about the African stuff, and like that's that's where they're all at. And it's a self-perpetuating thing. It's like anything else. It's a culture. And so when the guy on the top and all the boomers around him are excited about it, who's gonna who's gonna stand up against it? Well, there are a few guys who said actually there's problems with this. And like I said, you know they they came after me specifically for discussing these things. And I don't do it because I hate. Africans, I do it because I want the things that I value to continue to be propagated. That includes my country, includes the faith that I hold, like good things that I inherited and these guys are trying to destroy through neglect. Hans, you had some questions. Yeah. Uh, perhaps for the people who aren't as familiar with the organization of the Lutheran Church in the United States, maybe explain what is the LCMS, how does that differ from, um, what is it, the ECLA, and how does the, the Missouri Synod fit into that? Just a general breakdown of the Lutheran Church in the United States. Yeah, the ELCA, E-L-C-A, is the larger Lutheran denomination. When, when you hear Lutheran in the U.S., you think ELCA. Those are the guys with the rainbow flags and the lesbian you know, like they're the worst version of Protestantism imaginable. Like it's, they're not remotely Christian. There are Christians in Elka, but you know they're in the boonies and they they just got their heads down and hoping that things are going to change when they've been continuously getting worse for decades. They're the they're the mainline version of Lutheranism. LCMS is the next largest denomination, and historically, it's been conservative. Like I'm I'm in it because I'm obviously I'm conservative. You know, for whether whatever good that word is, you know, you know what it means when someone says that. 
So those two are the, the predominant ones. There's also Wells and Ls, which are smaller conservative denominations. Uh, be between LCMS, Wells and Ls, I think there may be two and a half million people, two and a half million souls, which is about the same size as Elka. So one of the reasons that, you know, when I started talking about religion you know, publicly in, in the right-wing sphere was I wanted people to know that there are actually Lutherans in this country that are still Christian because Elka gets all the press. And you know, again, whenever you see Lutheran in the press, you're going to see them. You're not going to see us. And three years ago, I thought, hey, LCMS is doing a great job. We should be we should be out in front. And there's been a rapid shift to the left, really, as as the, as the world has been decaying. You know, I think there was a there was some sort of rift in reality when George Floyd OD'd, and everything just veered hard left in every space. Wherever you look, it seems like everything got worse right around that moment, and that was certainly the case within my church body. How would you say? Uh, the Lutheran organizations are doing uh, compared to the other dominant Protestant, uh, mainline Protestant groups in the United States, uh, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Methodists. Uh, are, are Lutheran churches still somewhat full? Are these sort of uh, uh, volunteer organizations and uh, civic organizations within the church still active as opposed to the others uh, how, how would you how would you compare against those other other uh, denominations two years ago my answer would have been much more positive today i can only say based on direct observation and by looking at the data that they're all going down the tubes the only variable is how quickly mm -hmm. uh, the the since since 2010 which was is when the current president of the lcms took over we've lost like a quarter of our souls in 13 years. And one of the interesting things about that is that the decline in the number of members has actually exceeded the death rate. So it's not simply that boomers are aging out and dying. It's that people are leaving even faster, not only than death, but also births and confirmations. I, I think one of the universal things across almost every denomination, there are a few exceptions, but natality is fecundity is one of the crucial things that's missing. It's really missing because boomers dissuaded their kids from having families, certainly having large families. There was not emphasis on that. I think that, and that's one of the reasons that today they're saying, oh, we need to, we need to import new Lutherans from other countries because we're not having any kids. And they've, they've actually done studies within not only my church body, but others to try to prove via demographics that we can't possibly have babies enough to offset the losses, which is on its face foolishness. But you know, scripture talks about how children are a blessing from God. And the more kids you have, they're described as, as arrows in a quiver. And so these people just, not only are they being dumb politically and practically, but they're also denying scripture by flat out telling their families and their churches, having a lot of kids is not a blessing. You know, go off to college. Everyone is told to go off to college. And so we're, we're all in the same demographic death spiral. It, it varies some, but you, you'd also ask about community activity. I think one of the, one of the things that went wrong in the Reformation is that we got so good 
it focusing on making sure that people didn't think they could save themselves through good works, that we basically gave up on the idea of even talking about good works. And within my church body, a lot of pastors today are actually afraid to tell people to do good works, even though God says, I've prepared good works for you to do for your neighbors. I, I, God doesn't need our good works, our neighbors do. And so churches have abandoned the idea that we should help our neighbor because that might sound too much like works righteousness, which again comes across as hypocrisy. If someone says, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm really in, invested in you know, whatever goodness and, and, and loving God, and then all they'll do is write checks that get sent overseas, someone who's looking from the outside looks at that and says, this is, I can, I can spend my time and money better than this. I'm not, I don't see any value in anything that they're saying. And that it kills me. Like I said, it's there's something that we have doctrinally that's just being completely lost by all these missteps and these misdirections. Well, if I can ask, where are these people going that are sort of bleeding out of the church? Are they um, seeking out sort of the burgeoning evangelical organizations? Are they... Um, sort of just becoming general secular families. Um, what's becoming of them? Where, if you know, the the data says that overwhelmingly it's just apostasy. It's just people who, as was elucidated in some of those surveys from a little while ago, people just say this isn't for me, and they just leave. Mm. Um, which again, you know, it, it's heartbreaking. Like, and it's. At the same time, I don't blame them because so many of the churches are not even – they're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not preaching what they're supposed to preach, and so that that destroys faith. If you see hypocrisy, if you see lies, if you see like just worthlessness or corruption, you know, we talked a little bit about scandal and abuse and, and various aspects where not only is there hypocrisy, you know, usually at higher levels, but in some cases, you know, criminality or gross sexual misconduct. People are always looking for excuses to take the easy way out. And it's it's crucial in something like a church where it's completely voluntary. You know, if you don't show up on Sunday, it's probably going to be a while before anyone says anything in most places. You can't give people an excuse not to come. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's a case where when people are turned off, they're usually turned off entirely to the subject it's not that i'm gonna look for something better they just think well it's just not for me i think that there's there's quite a bit of that um i'm sure you're familiar with uh uh, last decade 15 years there's been uh you know splits in the baptists episcopalians now they're sort of anglican uh, offshoot uh believe there's some kind of split going on with the presbyterians the methodists it's uh sort of very predominant amongst american protestants now do you foresee more splits within uh, the lutheran communities do you see further bifurcation um, you know sort of the old sort of uh, larger organizations becoming ngos as you said and sort of younger uh, smaller uh, more active communities that uh, split off and have less and less to do with the uh, sort of the parent organization. Yeah, 
that that's definitely the case. And again, it's not, you know, one of the tricks with now analyzing these questions is that all those various church bodies that you mentioned have different doctrines about different things. There's some very stark differences yeah. between what a Methodist believe and, and the conservative Lutheran believes. But yeah, we all have the same problems and are all on the same death spiral. That that has spiritual reasons undergirding it too. And there's definitely one of the reasons that I, I started talking about this stuff is that there's simultaneously a resurgence in people who really want to double down on genuinely being faithful. And a lot of them, frankly, are coming from outside the church. You know, they're there are men who are either unchurched or, you know, left church. They were never really interested. And when they look at the state of the world today, even if they're agnostic, even if they don't believe maybe in the supernatural at all, they don't believe in God. When they look at footage on Twitter and elsewhere and they see the news cycle, the only possible conclusion for an honest observer is that there must be Satan. Whatever, whatever his name is, whatever he is, there must be some sort of ontological spiritual evil in the universe to be causing and exacerbating these things. Because the, the evil of the people doing some of the things in the world that we see is so far beyond what can be explained humanly that there's got to be a supernatural explanation. And so I, I started talking about religion instead of politics because I was seeing those guys who were not Christian, they weren't religious – seeing the spiritual battle that my own brothers in the church don't see to the same degree. And that, again, that kills me. Like we have the answers to these things, except we seem to be forgetting them. And so when there are men who say, well, if there's a Satan, there's gotta be a God. There must be something on the other side of this. Now I'm not, I'm not talking about the Demiurge. just not that there's, it's not that there's equal good and evil. God is infinitely greater than, than evil, but for a time, evil is being permitted, and it's also being permitted by us. You know, I think politically and historically, one of the big discussions in our spaces has to do with you know, kind of repristination. Where is there some date on the calendar where we can say, well, if we just rewind, you know, to 1610 or to 1492 or, you know, whatever, you pick some point in time and say, that's when they had it figured out. That's where... Europeans were doing everything right. I want to go back to that. I look at it as a Christian. I look at it through the lens of European history, white history, and Christian history. And what I see is that where we were at our peak as a people, as you know, as a, as a broader nation, was where we were the most Christian. And then as the Enlightenment came along and started chipping away piece by piece at the things that had made Europe Christian, the decline began. And now we're we're way past the downslope of that. We're in free fall. And but we're also in the middle of it. You know, we don't have the benefit of you know 30,000 foot view. We're down in the muck. And so we can't see really where we came from or what the what the solutions are. I think the Europe was great. I think the whites were great, not because we are inherently supermen. I think that we are great because we are blessed by God. And I, I look at the history of our people, and I see God blessing us for being faithful. And today, I see us not being faithful, and I see us getting eradicated. I think there's a link, and I think Scripture says the same thing. I, I want to say maybe uh, around the time that um, Obama was elected president, uh, 20, uh, 2009, 2010, you know, so 
from around that time. <laughs> he made this infamous comment, um, you know, we are not a, a Christian nation. I think, you know, maybe to paraphrase, or that could have been his exact words. Something that I noticed immediately after those comments were made. There was a very, very sharp turn in sort of the American approach to Christianity. Suddenly, it's not a serious thing. And very rapidly, you have uh, what was the sort of make-or-break moment for many Protestant organizations in the United States, which was the topic of gay marriage. And gay marriage really came to the forefront legally, uh, and culturally, uh, not long after those statements were made, it was only a few years later that it was deemed constitutional. Do you yeah. see that period, this really crucial, let's say, 2008, uh, which is when the gay marriage fight in California started, uh, to maybe 2015, as uh, a, a major inflection point? for American Protestantism and particularly Lutheranism. Did you notice this within the Lutheran Church, that this was a major controversy, this topic of gay marriage? I was not paying attention at the time. I, I should have been. But before I got engaged, I just, you know, basically it was kind of the Lutheran version of Patriots in Control. I knew that there were conservatives that were kind of running the show or trying to, and I just assumed they had things under control. I wasn't paying attention then, but I can tell you, having looked at the Pew numbers, uh, the Pew Longitudinal Survey from, I think, 2013, that specifically asked about this question, you know, just a few years after, I was shocked at looking at the data for my own denomination and for the similarly conservative ones at how overwhelming, uh, it was split basically about 50-50, where, you know, in terms of supporting homosexual marriage and the related questions. That shocked me looking back. I wasn't paying attention at the time, but I, when I looked at that in retrospect, I, I couldn't understand how that was even possible because it's not something that's tolerated within the church, or at least never has been in my experience. Mm -hmm. um, one of the questions that, that came up as, as we we're discussing doing this uh, episode was, around catechesis and you know, teaching and inculcating the faith and how Hollywood relates to that. or that, The question is about Hollywood and Netflix and things like that. I think that everyone, regardless of denomination, is being catechized 24-7 by a wicked world. And then they get a couple hours on Sunday, maybe, if they show up, where maybe somebody says the opposite. And there's such an overwhelming disparity between what you see in the grocery store on the magazine covers and what you see on TV and what you hear on the radio and what you're hearing at work. Like just the ambient morality surrounding everyone in this country is so perverse. And as you said, like there was definitely an inflection point around then where, you know, Obama initially condemned gay marriage and now you'll be fired if you condemn it. You know, he, he was a radical leftist at the time, and he was opposed to it. So there's absolutely a switch that flipped, and it applied to everyone. And I think it goes back to the previous question about which denominations are doing well. I think that bits and pieces of faithful Christians within some of these denominations, who have, again, they have doctrinal differences on historic fights. 
but they have a unity around a lot of these moral things, which is where I believe Satan's attacking it. He's attacking creation in marriage and family are a key part of how God ordered things. You know, that, that existed in the garden before there was anything else. And Lutheran doctrine is that politics are downstream from family because you know, Adam was the first head. He was the head of his family. And then that would have been, you know, head of a government that, you know, had, had they not sinned. I think that everyone in the church is just going along for the same ride, whether, whether you're, doesn't matter who you are, you're, you're exposed to the same things. And unfortunately people have not been armored by their churches and by their upbringing in the faith to just flat out reject it say, no, that's evil. I want nothing to do with it. Everyone's afraid to say that now. And we're, we're bearing the results of that. Even within the church, people are afraid to say that. Yeah. I, in fact, you know, you, you mentioned that, that Obama quote, that's something that the current president of the Missouri Senate basically said this year. He, he flat out said, in fact, in, in repudiating things that Stone Choir had said, literally, I mean, he put out a press release denouncing Stone Choir, not by name, but it was very clear it had to, it was only about what we had been saying. The, the right-wing conservative Lutherans today are explicitly saying we are not a Christian nation and as a church body, we are not here to Christianize this nation. We're going to be something that just sort of floats and is, is above the fray, which is nonsense. That's not how Christianity has ever worked. When Europe was Christianized, it largely came from the top down. Missionaries didn't go to individual villages. In many cases, they went to the kings. It was ultimately when a king converted that his people converted, because a, a nation with a monarch functions the same way as a household with a father. It's the same model, just a different scale. And whatever your leadership is, everybody follows. So when Obama be became the head of the U.S., you know, it's, it's different in some ways, but spiritually it's not. When the guy with the bully pulpit is saying, yeah, this stuff is fine, we're not going to do that anymore, everyone has a permission slip. And because particularly post-boomer culture People are afraid to be confrontational, you know, not in the sense of I'm going to, you know, shout and fight and, and be annoying, but people are just afraid to disagree and say, I don't believe that, actually. I think that's evil. I think we need to do what our grandparents did. Everyone's afraid to say that in the church, outside of the church. And so when there's a shift in the state, everyone, everyone goes along with it. I want to I go back to what you said about uh, sort of. Maybe there's only a few hours on the Sunday out of the whole week. You know, you absorb any any Christianity, any any alternative to sort of um, the, what you, you called it the catechesis of, of Hollywood. Uh, what how you know what have you found to be effective in providing uh, a cultural ecosystem, a way of life uh, that, that isn't just those few hours on a Sunday. You know, what, what has your community done to try and bring people towards something different? Maybe something that would have been far more normal just a few decades ago. I think for my part, you know, starting Stone Choir is one of the most effective things I, I think I can personally do for the specific reason that you know, I, I hate to use such a 
you know, kind of Libby term, but raising awareness, like the, the lifestyle that we all hold where even if you're a faithful churchgoer, it's a couple hours on Sunday and you got another 165 odd hours where you're doing other stuff and no one pays attention because that's just the, it's the habit of life that we've all gotten into. So I think making people conscious of the fact that, you know what, you are being catechized by the world the rest of the time. Every conversation you have, everything you're exposed to in the media, where you're not actually paying attention, that's teaching you something too. And I think that if people become aware that they're being preached to all the time and that they're competing religions, you know, it's not in the sense that we don't think of the secular as being a religion, but certainly in our age, it absolutely is. I think it's clear to everyone that things having to do with transsexuality and, and these other most modern, most egregious forms of this stuff, it's clearly religious. There's a religious fervor around it. And I think it's important for everyone to view it in those terms. I think when we pretend, oh, that's that's just political or those guys are wacky. I, I hate when people demean the left and say, basically just dismiss them and say, that's crazy. Those guys are whack jobs. They're libtards, you know, whatever disparaging thing you want to say, like it's fine to vent, but they're fundamentally pushing a competing religion. And it's one that when you look at it in terms of how scripture reveals God ordering creation, it's an upending of creation. You know, when, when you upend the family and you upend gender, sex, that's it. Like that's the garden of Eden turned upside down and inside out. And that's going to have the exact knock on effects that are intended by destroying those things. If, if I can offer somewhat of an outsider's perspective because I, I don't have a particular denomination. I, I'm, I consider myself somewhat open-minded and I, I talk to people of all different faiths. And if I had to choose, you know, just because culturally and historically this country has been Christian, you know, I'll, I'll pick that one. But beyond that, I, I couldn't tell you much more other than sort of my instincts and my experience would, would guide me towards and the people that I happen to know in my real life who are certain faiths and you know, I, I, I have no issues with Christians generally. Um, I guess what I would say though, is that what both of you, I think are observing and describing is symptomatic of a larger pattern that has been going on in all institutions of any sort of, uh, moral or philosophical framework, whether it's educational, like schools or, uh, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, things like that. All these types of things that try to build character, in my opinion, have been attacked. And I think there's an obvious reason for that for anybody who's been paying attention to this stuff. It's that they actually build strong people that are in opposition to those that are attacking these things. And if you take the churches, for example, I would imagine that if you said anything, even approaching what we're talking about tonight, in one of these churches as a church leader, especially that person would be contacted by someone else in the church or that person who's contacting them has already been contacted by somebody from somebody like the ADL or SPLC who effectively go out and try to destroy anything that opposes their version of what is right and what's good for them and what Hollywood preaches basically. And I think, I'm going to offer a, a thought because I honestly don't 
know if the traditional church is the way to go, but just take that with a grain of salt because I don't have any vested heritage with that per se. I mean, I've gone to churches and I've actually gone to lots of different types of churches and I I've had good experiences, bad experiences. It's not nothing against the church per se, but what I, what I would offer is it to me, it's a lot like what working from the office is like versus after COVID everybody somehow realized that, Oh, well we can actually do the same work sitting at a computer anywhere and we'll just use the internet. And I would say, why don't you just do that? And look, look at how popular Joe Rogan got by just talking his version of whatever he is about. And it's from the heart. Generally, I think it's appealing. It's educational for most, for the most part, and people like it and they can tune in wherever they are, whenever they want. And like you guys at Stunt Choir are doing, just do that. Why do I have to get up at a certain time and go to the office or church and hang out with a bunch of people I don't like who don't like me, who don't <laughs> let me talk and who seem to have this weird authority over me based on really false pretenses and frankly, corrupt, uh, corrupt things. And it, it just doesn't make any sense. And so let's just see what happens when somebody who actually speaks some sense for once like E. Michael Jones, you know, from the Catholic side of things, he got a huge following by just speaking his truth and people loved it and he got really popular. Why don't you guys just do that? And let's just see on an actual fair marketplace who actually gets more attention. And I'll bet you that people who actually speak honestly and truthfully and basic and, and based on things that they have done research on and things in scripture, like you guys talk, talk about and, and do, let's just see how far you get. And unfortunately, you're going to be still attacked. But I think it's a lot harder to attack somebody on the internet than it is with a building that pays. Well, I don't know if you pay property taxes these days. If you have a church, I think there might be an exception to that. But you got upkeep, you've got you know maintenance issues, electricity, all that stuff, overhead. Let's just see how the decentralized approach works. I, I would offer that as maybe an idea because I am really disgusted with all the institutions that used to be really sacred and, and good in the West. You know, the military, the, the church, the, the, the university, they've all been destroyed. And, and we know who's doing it and we know why they're doing it. And what's the answer? I don't know if it's like just go back into those stupid institutions. Maybe it's it's blow blow it up and think outside the box. That's all I wanted to say. But what do you guys think? I think you're absolutely right. The, the institutions that, you know, our grandparents inherited have been systematically hollowed out, worn as skin suits and then destroyed. Secular, religious, pretty much anything that's been an institution, as you said, was there for moral formation, for cultural reinforcement of good things has been systematically destroyed. I think on one hand, that's an indication that they had to be. I think we all know that, that if those things were still standing as they had been instituted, we wouldn't be in this shape. So from my perspective, when you know I see evil happening in my church body, in a way I take that as a good sign because it means that we still had something that was worth destroying. 
whereas a lot, of, a lot of other church bodies were so much further down the path that they're not undergoing as much stress today because they've already kind of been destroyed. I think where I would disagree with one of your premises is that I think those things were instituted in an explicitly Christian society, you know, long before living memory, where everything was Christian, those various things were erected to serve different types of purposes. And I think it gets a little bit back to what I was saying earlier about good works. Christianity is not just about this life. It's not just about living your best life or giving good advice. It's about the afterlife. It's about our relationship with God in time and in eternity. And a big part of that is our relationship with our neighbor, our relationship with our community, with our nation. But it goes beyond the political in the in the proper broad sense. I think that as Christianity died in the West, the institutions began to collapse because what was undergirding them was just kind of hollowed out, you know, turned into quicksand and fell away. And so, you know, it's amusing for me as an LCMS person to point to the Boy Scouts as, you know, one of the latter institutions to collapse because the LCMS had historically been strongly opposed to the Boy Scouts by seeing it as a sort of version of, of Freemasonry where there, you know, there are some secret O's. It's a an institution that was trying to uphold morality without the God behind the morality. And so the LCMS in particular was specifically opposed to the Boy Scouts because it was trying to be moral without necessarily pointing to a particular God with doctrines underneath them. I think that today, as you're looking at things like, you know, E. Michael Jones and Joe Rogan and podcasts and popular discourse, I don't think that that is competition with what the church should be. It's certainly competition with what a lot of the, you know, big kind of evangelical light churches have become. You know, there are places like Saddleback where like it's just it's a theater. People are going for an experience and maybe you know basically like TED Talks only with light shows and stuff and music. I don't as a Christian, I don't think that's at all the purpose of church proper. Now there's there's a distinction between training and raising someone, you know, for example, in Proverbs. If you read the book of Proverbs, it's a bunch of advice basically from a father to a son and from God to us how to live a good life. That's not salvific. It's not how you earn your way to heaven, but it is what a holy, godly life is going to look like. There's a time and a place for that, and then there are things that the church like the, the church service accomplishes that aren't exactly you know what you do on a podcast. I One of the distinctives of the LCMS, of, of conservative Lutheranism, some people call us Roman Catholic light because, you know, it, I've actually talked to, you know, Latin mass guys who were actually jealous of some of the services I've showed them from LCMS congregations because we preserve even more some of those forms of the tradition than they have. One of the things that's done within the LCMS is we, we don't call it a worship service usually. We call it a divine service. And the reason for that is it's focusing on who's doing what's happening Sunday morning. If you think that 
going to church is you showing up to hear a TED talk and maybe to be motivated or to to learn something educational that you get like might get from a podcast, then the quality of the presentation and you know how good the speaker is and you know whether or not you like the music is the most important thing because you're being you're going there maybe to be entertained, you know, edified, but you want some entertainment value. And when you talk about as a worship service, that's me doing something. Within Missouri Synod Lutheranism, conservative Lutheranism, we typically refer to as a divine service where God's doing something for us. And so your question about why would I show up for, for my denomination, we show up on Sunday because that is where God is delivering his gifts in a specific way. He promises to deliver them when the faithful are physically gathered in a way that you can't get on a podcast or a video stream or anything else. That there's something about the immediacy of the faithful gathering today together, you know, around the table to receive communion and to hear the word preached. The physicality of that is actually an element of what God is doing for us. And so I don't, I think that both are necessary. And I think that both need to be oriented around what God says we should be doing. But I don't think you can substitute church service for good speaking because they're not quite doing the same thing. But that that's rooted in doctrinal dis, you know, doctrinal purposes. So if someone disagrees with the doctrine, what I just said isn't going to make any sense. If you don't think that God's doing something, then then you would be absolutely right. Why bother if I can get better information from Rogan or e. Michael Jones or somebody else? But if God is doing something for me in the church service, which is what I believe, I believe that's what Scripture says, then I can't get that anywhere else. Yeah. And that's the reason why that's important. That makes sense. I, I guess what I'm sort of seeing, though, is... The, the unfortunate target that you're painting on your back by gathering, essentially using your real personhood and, and face and name makes the honest discourse less possible. And so if you could somehow marry what we're doing now with the physicality, I'd have no problem with that. But what I worry about is I, and I've, I've done this, I've gone to these churches and you can't say any of this. And, and really what's left, it's, it's really about, well, let's give stuff to Africa. Let's, uh, let's read something from the Bible, which is fine, but I can do that on my own time. And then, and then you talk afterwards and you have lunch or something and that's fine. That's community. But the other issues are completely left aside. And then if you talked in private to your pastor, he'd probably look askance or maybe, maybe agree with you, but also like worry about his position being put at risk if you ever brought this up in public. And so I don't know how you actually affect any change on the issues we're talking about, which we believe to be really important in the church at all, unless you actually say, Hey, look, you know what you guys, um, just like anything else, you know, if, if a restaurant starts, you know, delivering really bad service, you go to the next restaurant or you, you think, you know, a little bit more creatively, unfortunately, in these times that I think we might have to be, but I, I want what you're describing, but I just don't know if you're going to get it today. And that that's my frustration basically. And probably the frustration of a lot of people who have left church. I think it goes back to the Obama question. If, if people were saying 15 years ago in church, if, if they were saying today, what they're saying 15 years ago, they would face the consequences that you just described. And I think that's the fundamental problem. It, I don't think it's a pragmatic problem that we need a different way of presenting the truth. I think we need to sack up and stop being cowards. You know, the early church was defined by 
Roman persecution. The early Christians were fed to lions. They were set on fire. You know, Roman candle was, it was Christians who were set on fire to be torches for dinner parties. They confessed their faith. They confessed what God had told them. And they took the consequences as they came. I think that it, it disgusts me as a Christian that we claim to have the same heritage and the same God, but we don't have any of the guts to go one-tenth as far as they do, and just being honest. You know, if if Christians today in our churches were saying what Christians were saying 50 years ago in churches, as you said, they would face those consequences. And I say, so what? If everyone was standing up and saying, this is what God says, and this is what I believe, it would be a lot harder for them to be persecuted, because there would have been so many of them that there there frankly just be too many to persecute all at once. There would be there'd be enough pushback that you wouldn't have to have Roman candles and people being fed to lions. It's because we've been made into cowards, spiritual cowards that it disgusts people who look and say, well, why bother? And I agree with you. Why bother going to those places? I want to see places where people just say what God says and take what comes. That's what we're doing on some choir. And we, we face consequences where, and that's fine. It's being faithful may not be pleasant but it's still the right thing to do. Well, th- this comes up a lot in any dissident or maybe not even a, mi- a minority opinion. It's just sort of a persecuted uh, set of beliefs or opinions where you have an authority that disagrees with you and under the sort of game theoretic situ- uh, scenario where everybody who is in the majority grouped together and banded together and fought against that tyrannical power, you would probably win. But the the problem is unifying those people to that goal is difficult. And then the, the tyrant knows enough to divide and conquer basically the, the people below the tyrant, his uh, servants, I don't know what you want to call them, but the, the subjected people and they're going to pick off the people that start showing leadership qualities that might be able to lead those groups of people against them. And it's, it's really hard historically, but it might even be harder today to do it because of all the surveillance technology and just social media and whatnot, basically doing the deep States job for it. You know, if you, if if we look at what happened during COVID, it was basically every other Karen we know in our, social circle enforcing the doctrine of uh anthony fauci and all the, the people that were quote unquote in charge and uh experts on this subject and so i i hear what you're saying but i've also heard that from white nationalists i'm heard i've heard that from black nationalists it doesn't really matter it's any group that really is not in power that wants to either become independent or get some power and they they basically make the argument that if we all work together, we can do it. And they're not wrong. The problem is as soon as somebody actually has some charisma and, and, and is able to lead those people, they get, they get shot basically. I mean, if you look at what happened to, um, uh, not Martin Luther King, well, yes, him too, but, um, Malcolm X, that's, that's the example I wanted to use. So somebody like that, you know, it, it, it they're, they're, they're targeted. 
And so this is why I sort of put forward this like decentralized approach, because I, I think it's a, it's it's something else to consider. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work either, but, um, I worry that the, the old strategy of basically, you know, a guy on a podium leading his, his flock, that he'll just get picked off or get bribed or have one of his guys take him out. That's exactly what's happened time and time and time again. And it's, it's really only until people in power have, I think, this is my cynical view, the people in power want to change it, then it'll change. But I don't, I don't have a lot of faith in maybe a populist uh, uprising, personally. That, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't thinking of it in terms Prove of majority versus minority. <laughs> <laughs> I, you're definitely right about divide and conquer. You know, it's the, the, the people who come after you inside the institutions. Like you said, it's not going to be the ADL directly. It's oh, yeah. Going to be a pastor. Get, exactly. It's, it's going to be exactly. It's going to be the concern troll who is to your left who's going to come after you and say, well, we need to do something about this guy. Yeah. yeah. What my previous comment was predicated not on majority strength, but just having enough of a minority voice that there's too many for them to do the thing they want to do to you. You know, that's one of right. the reasons that doxing is so effective. Doxing is effective because you pick people off one by one. And each guy who gets knocked down is a warning and example to all the rest. Mm-hmm. Do you want this to happen to you? Don't let it. You you have to be afraid. You can't say things. If they dox 10 million people at once, get what? It doesn't matter. It's It has to be a small enough target for the rest to get the message. And so that's what I was thinking of. Like, you know, in the early Christian church, it was it was anyone they could identify as a Christian who was persecuted. You know, they, were, they had mass killings. Now, there weren't that many Christians relatively, but they were going after everyone they could. Fifty years ago, you know, most people were Christian in this country still, at least nominally. If if today they were saying the things that they were saying then, there would be too many for there to be even cultural pressure. There would be enough of a, a mass. I mean, look at the other side. Look at how few people are actually speaking in favor of transgenderism and these other crazy things. It's a tiny minority with the megaphone, but it's not that many people. It's just all the people making the noise. I think that, I think to, to your point about, you know, guys with megaphones like like Rogan, is that most people are listening and a few people are talking. And so if you can have influence, you can move a lot of people mm-hmm. in any direction. I mean, that's, that's why mass media has been such an incredibly powerful weapon against us, against, you know, the West, is that you can just convince everybody, well, this is what everyone thinks. And everyone's afraid to either they don't care, they're not invested enough to talk face to face with with their friends and neighbors, or they just assume that, well, what the TV or the radio said must be true. Everyone thinks this other thing. I think that there's one prong of the strategy. If if anything good is going to happen, it absolutely has to come from things like this, from things where, you know, it's it's a, a podcast episode you can share with people, you know, whatever episode doesn't have to be this one, but you can hand something to someone and say, you know what, here's, here's something you might not have thought about before. That's actually really important. The the last episode that we did on stone choir was a, two weeks ago was specifically about the Holocaust. We did three hours basically going through the key elements to demonstrate the, the historic narrative, the, the narrative that emerged in the sixties doesn't match the facts from the forties. And, 
the thing that was really heartening to me after we did that is that the feedback we got was, you know, a lot of guys are saying, I shared this with my girlfriend. I gave this to my mom. Yeah, I'm not. These are not extreme right wing dissident (laughs) wives and girlfriends. These are just normal people where if an intelligent person can sit down and describe the facts to someone, they may not believe it all, but they'll go along with and say, huh. And one of the things that we found after that episode was that a ton of people said that explains so much that I'd never been able to put my finger on before. Mm-hmm. So I think that we, in some ways, we underestimate the influence that we can have because so many of the voices in our space have been kind of crazy. They've been, it's because it is these, the truth has been pushed off to the fringe to the point that only people attracted to the fringe are even talking about it. And that's exactly what needs to happen to destroy the truth entirely. Normal people, I mean, it's, that's the Overton window in a nutshell. When only extremists talk about something, it becomes extreme. And that's self-reinforcing because there are some guys who were, the last episode we did on Stonequire just this week was specifically talking about conspiracy theories and how some people lose their minds. They start unwinding the lies they've been told, and then they're just off to the races, and they think, everything's got to be a lie and they will then fall for instead of falling for all the narratives they fall for all the counter narratives and so you end up you know thinking the earth is flat and that sort of crap it's you you can't fall off either side of the force but when intelligent normal people can describe things honestly it has a groundbreaking effect i i think we're seeing that on twitter right now is is the splc and adl have lost control of the degree of censorship that they had a year ago, I've seen the tone radically shift. And that has an effect. You know, it's 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 gradual and incremental, but it's incrementalism that got us to this point. And I think, you know, the clock is ticking. I'm not I don't think we have twenty years to turn the tide, but I think that just one man talking to another and describing these things makes a huge difference. And when you have one guy sharing a podcast that ten people listen to that's exponential growth. Completely agree. Hans, did you have any thoughts? I, I had something else I wanted to bring up. That's kind of uh, tangential. Um, but Hans, if you had anything before. Sure. What would you recommend as a sources, perhaps books, uh, to start with on Christian nationalism or the history of American Christianity. Uh, there's quite a few, almost too many uh, books on these subjects, but what would you, what, you know, what sources would you recommend to, uh, to, to the listeners? Specifically on the question of Christian nationalism, I, I was, Corey and I were one of the first people actually talking about that subject. I have not read the couple books that have come out from uh, Andrew Torbo's space. I think uh, Boniface Option might have written one. Stephen Wolf wrote one. I haven't read them. The reason I haven't read those books is that those guys are coming around, but they're still kind of coming at it from the Sivnat perspective where magic soil and ideals will change fundamentally a human being from one nationality to another. And I as a Christian and as a nationalist, I value the definition of both of those words. I think that when we have these churches with rainbow flags, there are no Christians inside. And I think that nation 
you know, the etymology of nation is the same root as natal. It specifically has to do with lineage. There's no such thing as a non-racial nation. You can have a non-racial country. And that's, that's historically been an empire. When you have multiple races in a country, you have an empire. If you have multiple races and it's not an empire, that's a war. And I think that's kind of where we're at. So I, I can't recommend a book because I don't think anyone's written it yet. Uh, Stone Choir, one of the early episodes, we did a couple episodes, one on Christian nationalism and another was titled Election and View of Headship, where one of the things that I wanted to tackle, and again, this goes back to the synthesis of why is the world attacking whites? Why is the world attacking the idea of nations, of nationality, of nationalism being you know evil? I think another related word that goes along with both of those is colonizer. When that is used as a slur, which like when you hear colonizer now, it's naturally you think that was this person hates something. And it's some people think, well, that's a terrible thing. The worst thing you'd be is a colonizer. In the episode that we did on election, meaning uh, biblical election, that God foreordained those who would be saved. We specifically made the point that when you look at the history of Europeans after 1492, as we spread out from Europe to go to other continents, we took the gospel with us. We took the Christian faith with us, and we went to parts of Africa. We went to a lot of South America and North America. Eventually, we got to parts of Asia that we hadn't been to, and we took Christianity with us. It's my belief that the hatred that we see today, again, I, I'm coming at this from a supernatural perspective, I think that Satan's pissed off that he lost North America and South America and in Africa. Those places that for thousands of years had never had anything remotely Christian, they were completely descended into demon worship. And when we showed up, we saw that. We saw absolute horrors. We saw people who were naked, who were human sacrifice and cannibalism and things that never happened in Europe. Bad things happened in Europe when, when it was it was pagan, but never to nearly the same degree. I think that we see hatred of things like colonialism today. It's specifically an attack on the fact that when whites went elsewhere, we took the gospel with us. And so back to your question about Christian nationalism, I think that the nation part of that is every bit as important as the Christian part. Because if you take just Christianity as a religion and you detach it from the people who held it. it Christianity is a, is a faith. Jesus died for everyone. Jesus died for every human being who has ever lived. That's The Bible is completely clear about that. Europe is the only place that Christianity took off until fairly recently. And it only took off in other places because we brought it. And so I think that Christian nationalism, is, if it's not rooted in the fact that nations are racial, it's ultimately just going to be another sort of universalist nonsense where you have people saying, I don't care if all the Lutherans in Germany or the United States go away because we can just teach Africans to be Lutheran. I, I think we have to get both of those questions right simultaneously or there's no point in either. I have, I have maybe a, a bridging thought that I hope you can clarify because to be honest, I'm a little bit confused by the distinctions between 
what it means to be a nationalist, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a right winger, what it means to be a left winger. Um, and I, I, I wasn't going to read, uh, the whole paragraph. I was going to try to keep it short, but I think actually based on what we were just talking about and what you were saying, it might be necessary to read the paragraph. And I got this by the way, from a really good Substack that I've, uh, reading recently called neo-feudal review i don't think he's christian but he's at least scholarly enough to cite a lot of stuff but i'd actually like you woe to clarify it because i think i trust your christian understanding more and and tell me where he might be getting some of this wrong but before i read the what he's actually written and what also he quotes I want you to just keep in mind his basic assertion as I understand it is that a lot of what the left is today is actually based in Christianity and that might bother you and it maybe bothers me too, but I've heard that a lot and I'd like you to clarify what is going on here if you can. So um, he starts with quoting uh, Ted Kaczynski, the recently deceased Unabomber. So we're told. Uh, who wrote actually some pretty interesting books. Uh, this is not an endorsement of, by the way, of bombing people, you know, in the mail. This is just based on what he's written where he doesn't even talk about that. Uh, he just talks about basically what technology is doing to society. And this is from his, um, book industrial society and its future. Uh, the two psychological tendencies that underlie modern leftism, we call feelings or of inferiority and over socialization. Feelings of inferiority are characteristic of modern leftism as a whole, while over-socialization is characteristic only of a certain segment of modern leftism. But this segment is highly influential. It goes on, and then it continues, uh, I think, later in the book with this quote is from this point on. Many leftists have an intense identification with the problems of groups that have an image of being weak, e.g. women, defeated, e.g. American Indians, repellent, e.g. homosexuals, or otherwise inferior. The leftists themselves feel that these groups are inferior. They would never admit to themselves that they have such feelings, but it's precisely because they do see these groups as, as inferior that they identify with their problems. Uh, in parentheses, we do not mean to suggest that women, Indians, etc. are inferior. We are only making a point about leftist psychology. And then this is the last segment of Kaczynski. Leftists tend to hate anything that has an image of being strong, good, and successful. They hate America. They hate Western civilization. They hate white males. They hate rationality. Uh, the reasons that leftists give for hating the West, etc., clearly do not correspond with their real motives. They say they hate the West because it is warlike, imperialistic, sexist, ethnocentric, and so forth. But where these same faults appear in socialist countries or in primitive cultures, the leftists find excuses for them or at best he grudgingly admits that they exist, whereas the enthusiastically points out and often greatly exaggerates these faults where they appear in Western civilization. Thus it is clear that these faults are not the leftist real motive for hating America and the West. He hates America and the West because they are strong and successful. Now here's the link to where this uh, blogger is, is making to Christianity and leftism. Uh, Kaczynski's explanation of leftist obsession with tearing down anything seen as strong, successful, or superior syncs up easily with Paul's 
I think St. Paul uh, or Paul of Tarsus, I can't remember, but one, Paul, original transvaluation of values, which was aimed at subverting and destroying Roman warrior values, which valued greatness, strength, individuality, self-determination, immediacy of purpose, honor, acceptance of hierarchy and nobility. Uh, he then, and this is the last part, uh, he then cites two passages from, one is from Galatians and the other one is from Matthew. Uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Uh, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3.28. And then whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whoever, uh, whosoever be chief among you, let him be your servant. That's from Matthew 20.26-28. 20, okay, so he's basically saying egalitarianism, kind of leftist stuff, is Christian. And Kaczynski's take on leftism was kind of interesting because he's basically saying people who are sort of castaways in society have this innate attachment to leftism. And I think that's somewhat what Christianity was based upon too. And to defend Christianity, I guess a little bit personally, some of Rome was really disgusting and over, overdone. I mean, they would just execute people for, for sports in these coliseums and they were pretty ruthless and mm-hmm. how they behaved and, and so I don't personally subscribe to that level of, of cruelty, but I also do respect some of the virtues I think of Rome where strength and you know, honor and all that stuff seem pretty good too. So my take is that Christianity and Rome sort of merged and then they kind of went on this like weird path together for a while there, but th- they are kind of contradictory in some ways and, and the left and the right are sort of different too. So how do you see like all that interpretation of Kaczynski and also this blogger of like the left in Christianity. What I was just saying about election and view of headship episode talking about, you know, colonialism and the modern hatred of whites. That is my answer to what Kaczynski said. I have, I hadn't read that, but that's exactly what I was talking about. If you don't see any spiritual nature to the conflict then yeah, it just seems like strength versus weakness or degeneracy versus purity or something. I see it, again, as when whites took the gospel to these places that had been owned by evil for thousands of years, that was a massive L for Satan. You know, he, he had had every African for thousands of years. He'd had every South American and North American for thousands of years. Suddenly, white guys show up. They're Spaniards, you know. <laughs> discussion for another day (laughs) europeans showed up europeans showed up with christianity and converted those people and so for the very first time you have africans who would you know by christian doctrine would go to heaven because they believe the gospel and i think that's the explanation for what kaczynski observed i don't think i don't think it was strength versus weakness and i think one of the kind of silly things about the subsequent commentary on him from the substack is that in order to believe that, you have to ignore over a thousand years of European history where we were muscular Christianity, where it was the kingdoms and right. kings who were all Christian doing the very things the you know, kind of the Nietzschean view of Christianity, the slave morality thing, wants to pretend never existed. In my view, and I, I challenge anyone to defy this, the glory days of Europe were the Christian days of Europe. 
And the more European countries were Christianized, the greater they became. Now, they did impressive things before that. Rome was impressive. Greece was impressive. But as you correctly identified, Rome was also kind of a cesspool. Like a lot of the problems that we oh, have absolutely. today, absolutely. they had then. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Galatians 3.28 because that is a proof text that a lot of the pastors I have a problem with use, you know, there's neither Jew nor Greek. You know, Greek is also translated Gentile. Mm. The Greek word there is ethnos. It means nations. It means races because Jew was a race and a religion. And then all the other nations, all the other races were separate. That verse in particular is incredibly important because when you look at the context of Galatians 3.28, it has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with sex. It has nothing to do with social status. The other thing was slave nor free. It specifically has to do with salvation. It's saying it doesn't matter what your station is in life is. Jesus died for everyone, and everyone can and is saved if he believes. And so that verse is today used as a sense. solvent. Yeah, to destroy and, the nation. And that, yeah. 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 And, and I, I have this fight a lot of, you know, most all these pastors have blocked me at this point, but they want to say there's Jew, neither Jew nor Greek, therefore race isn't real. Like, okay, well, there's no male and female. So does that mean the tranianism is okay? Just on its face, no Christian doctrine about anything other than race can possibly survive if you use that as a proof text. This begs the question, why are these guys pastors? I mean, was just nobody else applying (laughs) for the job? It's like, honestly, that's what it sounds like, because you clearly have a better understanding of this stuff to me than a lot of these guys, unfortunately. Not everyone. I'll give some people the benefit of the doubt where they dedicate their lives to this stuff, but but I, I've met some guys and it's like, I, I don't know, like if they're blocking you, they don't even want to discuss it where you have a, a pretty cogent argument that to me is just, it's anti-intellectual. It's, 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 it's dishonest in many ways. And, and it sort of goes against what actually their role is supposed to be is actually like helping the laity. Right. <laughs> so yeah. how do they yeah. get their job? <laughs> I mean, they don't seem to be doing their low, job. Low standards. Yeah, low standards, low standards exactly. And, yeah. and again, it goes back to something I said earlier. There hasn't been serious theological introspection of issues, in my opinion, really since the Reformation. It's it's particularly the case with Christian, with sorry, with Lutherans. The Reformed and some of the other have done more thought about different things. The Lutherans are still living in the 16th century, and anything that Luther and Melanchthon and Chemnitz and a few other guys didn't write about just doesn't exist in their minds. And I, I've described the Lutheran Confessions, the Book of Concord, as a sort of Maginot line that was successfully drawn around the doctrine of justification. And Satan's like, okay, whatever, I'm just going to go around. You, you, you're going to say that that I can't tell people they're saved by their good works, fine. I'm going to tell them that there's no male or female. I'm going to tell them you can be whatever you want. You can self-identify and undo how God created you. And these pastors who have no ability to actually read Scripture and correctly interpret it against modern heresies, mm-hmm. they just they fall back to, the, to these nonsense things that are informed by their Netflix catechesis. That's exactly right. They're informed, yeah. Yeah. They're informed by the world. And... 
yeah, it's it, it's weak men, and it, I, I think it's consistent through both what Kaczynski said there, and and the other quote is that it goes back to what we were talking earlier about institutions being subverted. The weakness is not an inherent part of Christianity. Now, meekness is, and that's something different. You know, there's we've all seen like the the pictures of the enormous power lifter cuddling a little kitten. Mm-hmm. That's meekness. That's someone who has the ability to do harm, and he chooses not to. Uh-huh. That's not weakness. It's it's fundamentally different. And I think that these guys, because the church has been feminized, which yes. is destruction of the church, the, the feminization of thought and of discourse and then of belief makes it impossible for men to have, as you said, these rational discussions about things. Like, there's, there's reason involved, and I— I've upset pastors by talking about this, but it's the same way that Paul speaks in, in Acts and in, in some of his other epistles. He talks about reasoning in the temple with the Jews and with others. He appealed to Scripture, but he used reason to do it. It wasn't simply prophecy. He's like, look, if A, then B. Jesus did the same thing. Jesus and Paul both use Aristotelian logic in certain places because that's like, it wasn't the Greeks who invented that. I, I believe that God reason is a gift from god right they, they so kind of they kind of just like formalized it into a system but it was exactly. always there yeah. you know it's not like yeah exactly we didn't like we that. didn't invent uh well maybe we did invent algebra i mean this is sort of but it but it was like the, the concepts are there it's like it was baked in to the system we just discovered yeah. it kind of thing yeah exactly it, it's baked into creation and so it's entirely permissible for christians to appeal to to reason and to appeal to science, not against what Scripture says, but that's another thing that I, I'm keen to tackle on Stone Choir and elsewhere, is that one of the biggest problems I think the Church has when reaching out to men, like probably many in your audience, they're very knowledgeable about things in reality. They're yeah. knowledgeable, you know, hard hard facts. Yes. And when you, when you know something about race and IQ and whatever you have spent time investing in, and then you hear a pastor just completely lie about it. Yeah. You don't know how to judge his doctrine, but you know how to judge a liar and an idiot. And it doesn't <laughs> matter what he says about Christianity, because you know he's a fool. And, and you know, it's 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 like out. when I'm trying to hire somebody for a job, and I notice that uh, their shoes are untied, or just just something. You know, it's the best <laughs> example I can give you, like with, with spur of the moment. But you start noticing patterns, right? Where something's off or they say something with a whole bunch of gusto and confidence and it, you just know it's wrong. Um, you start questioning the judgment in other areas, right? And the details matter. Um, I'm sorry. You know, it's like, if you don't care enough to get this right, what else do you not care about? You know? So. Exactly. And when, when someone who is unchurched has expertise in an area and they're lied to, that's the end of the discussion. And again, that kills me as a Christian. Is like we have explanations for a lot of these things where reason falls short. Like there's no way to reason mm. your way around the state of the world and the evil in the world. I, I, I firmly believe there's only a supernatural explanation for that. But when the place that's supposed to have the explanations for the supernatural is lying about the natural someone who knows the natural is not going to want to listen and it keeps people out of church and as you said like why would i go to church i can't argue with you why would you go to church with one of these liars who wants to 
subvert the very book that is the source of what should be truth. It is a source of truth, but not once it's through their brains and their mouths. Mm. It's like, we have to get all this stuff right at once. Like you said, like it goes to credibility. And it, I think one of the problems is that pastors and others aren't willing to just keep their mouths shut. They feel like they have to have an explanation for everything. Mm. And Interesting. I think, I think Lutherans are particularly vulnerable to that because, again, we, we did a really good job with soteriology, with how we're saved. We did a really good job with justification and not thinking we can earn our salvation. And, you know, it's like in, in Hunt Fred October when the, when the sonar system couldn't identify the noise and mm-hmm. thought it was a magma displacement. These guys run back to justification whenever they hear something they can't understand. Right. And so I've, I've, been re- I've been repeatedly accused of saying, you think you can save yourself by by talking about race like no jesus is the solution for sin but that includes the lies that you're telling about creation Hmm. it's like it's when when guys are unwilling to to engage and to listen it's a it's a disaster because they're guys like i'm gifted at this i'm good at this Corey is good at this god has made men who can live in both worlds and speak to these things and that's why we have to be destroyed we have to be picked off because because you know we're portrayed as, as bomb throwers and lunatics on the internet but when someone actually listens to our podcast like we're just reasonable guys so we can explain things clearly the last thing that they want is for someone to hear us explain things because it makes sense it's not tricky it's not complicated it's very simple mm-hmm. it's it's reason it's a plus b equals c yeah it's it's a tactic that that, that works unfortunately for or against i guess a lot of people is you call somebody crazy you dismiss them and most people just aren't willing to question that for a variety of reasons but i would say about 60 percent or more of the population will just defer to authority they won't critically think and you're only going to get the 40 or less percent of people who will even bother listening to what you have to say because the authority has already marked you, you know? So it's an ancient phenomenon. I think it's to human nature for whatever reason. I just don't think a lot of people are really very reasonable, um, for lack of a better word. And what do you do with that? I mean, I think anybody who's talking on the internet under a false name, is dealing with the same problem because they can't have these conversations with everyday people. So we have to find each other through these goofy channels. And, um, and I'm grateful that everybody who thinks along these lines is out there somewhere that I'm able to connect with them. I'm sure everybody who's listening or commenting or doing their own show or like yourself is also grateful for that. Um, but it still leaves us with the question, what do we do if we're in the minority? Um, I think, I think you're right. I think saying the truth does have an effect. I think people can share it. I think that that helps. Um, but take the example of Ted Kaczynski. It's interesting actually. And maybe this is, there's some analogies to, uh, I, I, I'm not trying to like, you know, speak out of turn here, by the way. I, I just, it just occurred to me because he, he clearly was an intelligent guy who maybe had some, well, maybe not just maybe 
he almost certainly had some mis- misguided intentions. The only reason I put maybe in there is because we did a show actually on Kaczynski a few years ago, and I should probably listen to it again um, or just review the material. But uh, Nick, my co-host, um, he pointed out that, you know, that guy, he it's not super obvious that he actually did the things he did. He might have, but because, you know, you can understand the motivation back then. There was no internet. How do you get these ideas out there? He was sort of frustrated. Like he couldn't get out the word um, because he tried to get it published. Nobody would publish it. You know, you're, you're nuts. Uh, This is weird. And he apparently did all these bombings. Now, Nick's theory is not, he wasn't like saying it was slam dunk or anything proof, but he he suspected that it's possible that the Unabomber quote unquote was basically a, a caricature or, or a character that the, the FBI and people like that created to either justify their existence or explain away why all these random things that they couldn't stop were happening and they wanted to bottle it up in one scapegoat. And that was sort of Kaczynski, whether that's true or not. I don't know. But in any case, if he did those things, I don't, I don't endorse that, uh, the bombings of people, but what he had to say was very thought provoking. And I think as we reviewed today, uh, some of what he had to say was pretty accurate. And I think he was going through sort of a, a, a trial that he couldn't get what he was in his mind. And I think a lot of people's mind in retrospects minds, he was onto something and how did he do it? He wrote it down. He, he put his ideas out there. And if you go on Twitter, a lot of people like weirdly call him uncle Ted, like he's some sort of part of their family. And that's, I think somewhat cheeky tongue in cheek like not really a a serious thing to say i think it's sort of a joke but it also i think somewhat indicates that a lot of the social media stuff is parasocial and we're we're really desperate to find people that we agree with and and like um and what i was starting with saying and i'll I'll try to finish it now is well the, the christians were not super popular at first but they wrote down their ideas they had people who believed very firmly in what they had to say. And it, uh, it eventually went somewhere. It wasn't necessarily on the time timeline that the originators, uh, were, were trying to get going on, but it, it snowballed eventually. So who knows if what we're doing is, is, uh, going to amount to something on that scale, but, um, it's clearly got to start somewhere. And I would, I would just sort of conclude the thought is that whatever you're saying, um, and this is my cynical side, you got to do people right. You can't give them advice or leadership or guidance that just amounts to basically them sacrificing and then their, their children sacrificing. I think you have to have results at some point, but that's, that's just me as a pragmatist, basically saying that people are going to drift away unless there's something that helps them. And so my goal is to try to bring it home to something that people can use as much as possible. But, um, I I don't, I didn't really have a question there. I was just sort of a stream of consciousness. I I was making kind of an analogy, I guess, with anybody who's not able to get their thoughts out. What do they do about it? You know?
don't don't go sure. don't put don't put letter bombs in the mail please but uh may, maybe write it down is what i'd say yeah i saw somebody point out around the time he died if he just waited a couple of years the internet would have appeared and he could have been a blogger and everyone would have read it because mm-hmm. it would have caught on i remember as a kid <laughs> literally reading because they published it in the newspaper and reading it and be like this actually makes a lot of sense <laughs> and I, I didn't know anything about who this guy was it was just like it was in the paper and weirdly i think i was i don't know how old i was but you know i was somewhere in grade school and and i looked at it and it was um it, it was good. And, and and I think what it caught to me, because I was still in school, it was like, you know, these schools, like they, they force force kids to sit in these chairs and like they, they tell them these things that don't really do anything for them. And why, why are they surprised where the kids like don't pay attention and don't want to do their homework? It's like, well, that's kind of what I'm saying. It's like, well, if you're if you're teaching things that are useless what do you think the kids are going to do now? It's true that like a lot of kids don't know any better and maybe they do need to learn how to read and write and they don't quite understand the value of those things until they get older. But I mean, I think there's a, there's a a middle point where like, I'll I'll give you an example. Um, A lot of people have been talking about chat GPT recently and teachers especially have been really upset that a lot of their students are, uh, turning in their assignments based on this chat GPT. Now, part of me agrees with the teacher. Okay. I'll be honest, but also part of me as sort of the, uh, anarcho capitalist, whatever the heck people think I am. I'm not really that, but it's just somebody, there's a part of me at least that's like, you know what? Good on that kid. Because in the real world, the boss or the customer is not going to give a damn how hard they work to get those results. They're just going to care about the results. And if they can find a solution that's more efficient to deliver what the end goal is, they're going to do well. And so I don't like where these teachers start chastising students for being smart, basically. Um, But I understand that also the other side where it's like, okay, well, they're just, they're not, building the skills also that they're going to need when they can't use chat GPT. So regardless, but, um, I'll stop talking. Uh, I'm sure you, you, you've, you had something to say based on what I just said, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, no, I, the, the initial question that set that off was what do you do when, you know, maybe only 40% of most of the population is going to agree with you. Yeah. Personally, I don't care. I, I, my philosophy for the last 20 years is I don't care if anyone agrees with me mm-hmm. because I, in the IQ episode, we, I talked about like my IQ is within spitting distance of Kaczynski's. I'm thankful that I was not tortured as a child. And right. as a, as a, like he was destroyed by the things that happened to him long before he, you know, burned out or whatever. But the things that he, he wrote about, as you said, like they were pressure. They resonate today because what he said was harebrained at the time, but then it came true. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't a prophet. He didn't have some revelation. He could just see where things were going. Right. That's always been my experience. I can always tell sometimes, you know, decades down the road, here's where this thing is going to end up. And I used to try to tell people, and I, I used to be invested in people like coming along and believing me, but a long time ago, I realized that nobody's going to believe me. So I just kind of decided, you know what, I'm just going to say it anyway. I'm not going to be strident. I'm not going to be invested, but I'm also not going to be quiet. When something comes up and I can point and say, look, here's the thing, and here's what's going to happen, 
And then, you know, two years, five years, 10 years, I'm happy to tell my friends, I told you so, you know, not antagonistically, but like, Hey, remember that one time I said this, here it is. And so it's never bothered me that no one agrees with me. And it's been very beneficial because it makes it easy to, to talk about these things. Like, you know, when we started Stone Choir, it was specifically to talk, to tackle topics that are either neglected in the church or are alien to the kind of the normie sphere. Like I said, like we're, we're dealing with some facts and statistics coming from places like 4chan, you know, stuff that has never been laundered into where normal human beings get any information. It's not like we're, it's not a clearinghouse for, for weird crap from the internet. It's just some stuff is true. And when something is true and it's a threat, sometimes the only places you find it are on the fringes. And so Ori and I are both very comfortable saying, look, here's what's going on you know, in the case of, you know, specifically dealing with Christian things. What we see in the world is consistent with what scripture says. It's consistent with our religion and it's consistent with our lying eyes. And it's okay for both of those things to be true for, true at once because they're consonant. It's the same picture. And if someone agrees, that's awesome. And if no one agrees, okay, well, you know, when we started out, I didn't, I didn't think anyone would listen. Like, I, I hope that we would get past 50 listeners who basically be like our friends kind of charity listening to us. And it very quickly turned, it took off. You know, I, there are tons of people now. I've long past the point where I have any idea who's listening in terms of personal relationships. And like I said, you know, some of our quote unquote edgiest material, edgiest episodes, guys are sending to their girlfriends who are, you know, they, they've never, these are guys who will not discuss these things with their own friends and family for the same reason that, you know, you were talking about. Like, you don't want to get burned in real life. And I think one of the benefits of having something on the internet is you can say sort of slyly, hey, look at this thing I found. What do you think? It seemed interesting. And if, if they freak out, you're like, oh, yeah, I, I thought it was kind of wild, too. You don't have to invest in it. So we're happy to bite the bullet. We're happy to be the first ones through the door that will take the bullets. And then somebody else can later come along and say, well, actually, yeah, that's true. I think that being comfortable with people not agreeing with you is a vital part of being convincing. If if you are worked up and amped up and you've got to make sure that someone agrees with you, that's a turnoff all by itself. I don't know if I take things too yeah. far the other direction. I, I don't care. I don't care if anybody agrees with me. And it's not dismissive. It's just that I've, I've gotten kicked in the teeth so many times that it's like, okay, I know it's right. I, I put in the legwork before I open my mouth. And if I think it's important enough to say something that's going to make people angry, I'm willing to say it anyway, because maybe it'll resonate with somebody. And sometimes sometimes it takes a while for an idea to come to fruition. But when it does, then the work is there. And like it's it's a packaged product. It's it's an easy thing to say, yeah, here it is. You know, here's here's IQ. Here's the JQ. Yeah. Whatever you want to talk about, like there's there's a way to package it up and give it to people like maybe it's, you're leaving it like a gift on their on their doorstep well I, I was curious how do you go about deciding what topics you want to discuss because obviously it's it's got a theological orientation on the show but the couple episodes you sent me it's sort of the the, the intersection between the I guess the Bible I, and I'm also curious about your thoughts on the old versus new testament but those two together is traditionally called the Bible. 
uh, and things in real life. So race was, I think one and the other one was IQ. Um, and, and I encourage anybody to check out their website cause they talk about a lot more and, and there's more clearly religious things, but those were, I think kind of bridge episodes. Do you try to, what, like, what's your goal with the show? Do you want to sort of, um, talk about forbidden topics? Do you want to talk about basically topics that you think are just important? And that would include some of the things that mainline churches would talk about, but also things they won't talk about. How do you go about deciding what, what is important to your audience and for, and for yourself as well? We, we never had an explicit roadmap for the things we wanted to cover, but we absolutely wanted to cover foundational matters that build on each other. And, you know, one of the early episodes we did was specifically on a frame on how you can trick someone just by reframing a question in such a way that if they adopt your frame, they're going to believe whatever you say because you've, you've got them in a trick bag. There's, there's no way for them to outmaneuver this little box that they've been put in by your rhetoric with, without any regard to, to reason or anything. And so I think in some ways a lot of our topics are kind of a, a synthesis of certainly things that we've spent a lot of time talking about and thinking about privately, you know, arguing with each other and with others. As we go along, more and more of the episodes refer back to others by, you know, reference by incorporation, different aspects of things, because it really is kind of an interlocking tapestry of ideas that by themselves, each episode stands alone. But I think for me, the important thing is, again, I don't, I want Christians to be able to see the same news that non-Christians see and be able to explain it to them. And I want, I want to make sure that people within the church are not being hypocrites and being fools. That's kind of, Mm. That should be table stakes for Christians. Right. I don't want us to sound stupid when we're talking about reality. Yeah. And it's not that I'm afraid to sound stupid. Like I, I mentioned the IQ episode, I get called retarded more than anyone virtually on the internet, probably. Who, who's, I say who, stuff. who's who's saying that to you? I, I don't get the reason why anybody would say that unless they're actually not very smart themselves. But like, what it's, what is, what is the motivation there? And who who who's it, saying that? It's it's midwits. It's smart guys. It's guys with IQs of 125, 130, because they're used mm. to being the smartest guys in the room. Okay. And when someone says something that they can't put in a box, they can't categorize it, their experience in their life is that when someone says something I don't understand, they're retarded. That's just their default position. Well, I'm not and, sure what my IQ is, but it's probably somewhat like that. And I, um, I, I, I don't... Uh, I know that there's part of me that's like that, but I also think that that was like my, that's how I was as a child, you know? And as I think as I've, I've matured, hopefully I realize that my rejection of, of people who disagree with me, a lot of that is an emotional reaction based on my comfort zone of being right a lot. And if they're not aware of that, that's sad. But I also don't think that everybody, cause I think I'm maybe one example of that type I don't think everybody who's that IQ is going to react that way, but you're but saying yeah, who, who is doing that? I guess it's like, that is the group. And then the people who are, are that, are that 
IQ who are not doing that are not arguing with you, but but of the people that are arguing with you, you're saying it's mostly midwits as you describe it. But why don't you yeah. go over what, what a midwit is? I think it's interesting. Because <laughs> <I, laughs> a lot of people I, use that I, term, I, but they, they don't necessarily define it the way you do. I think a midwit is is within five or ten points of 130. There's one of the things we talk plus about. Plus or minus? Episode, is that what that means? Or, or, yeah, or yeah, plus or 130 minus. minus is more of a midwit. What, 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 yeah, like 120 to 135. There you go. Somewhere in there. Yeah, that, that sounds right. Yeah. One of the things we... Oh, I want to rehash the IQ episode, but basically there's there are kind of zones of compatibility. It, basically anyone who has a, a, a equivalent IQ can pretty much do the same thing. Yeah, Corey is smarter than me, but there's probably nothing that he can do that I can't do, even if I have to work harder to do it. Once you get past one and a half to two standard deviations, not only can't you do the same thing that somebody with a higher IQ does, but you can't even understand how they do it. It just turns into magic. Mm-hmm. And so you're absolutely right. We said, like, it's it's not that that sort of behavior is endemic to someone in that range. It's just that if, if someone has an IQ in that range and they haven't had the benefit of being around people who are a lot smarter than them, they just don't know what it sounds like. They don't know what it's like to get their butt kicked in a conversation because they're always the ones delivering that. It's, it's strange because I, I wonder if there, I'd love to see the data on this, but I'm not Mark Zuckerberg, so I don't have all this information in front of me. But there's got to be a pattern with these types that they have maybe like a medium level of ambition in their life where they don't actually push themselves to get to the point where they actually are challenged by people who are better than them. Because I can tell you, and I have a fair, I think I have a fair amount of ambition and I haven't been in rooms where there are people who run circles around me in, in the intelligence department. And I'm not, I'm not stupid, but it's just, I've seen the places where, I mean, you know, universities, you know, especially, but it's also, (laughs) you know, sometimes in the corporate world, sometimes IQ is not necessarily the, predictor of success in the corporate world, but in universities, it usually is. And there are types that are just unbelievably smart. And I've been around those types and I've been humbled by them. And maybe the people that you're interacting with that don't seem to, you know, have this ability to, to acknowledge that maybe somebody else might have a point. They just haven't pushed themselves that hard. I don't know. It's just a theory. Um, my, my father's very intelligent, but I, he, I, he's ambitious, but I don't know if he pushed himself to be in a room where he was challenged in a way that maybe I have. And it's not to say that I'm smarter than him, by the way, but it's just that there's a different like personality type that like maybe doesn't like to be in that, that place. And they just kind of instinctively leave. I have this kind of weird personality where I'm actually always looking for places that make me uncomfortable because I feel like I'm growing from those experiences and I haven't been able to articulate that for most of my life. But I think as I look back on it, I think that's probably why, but it's sort of a, it's sort of a a strange personality. So perhaps that's not what you're running into usually. Yeah. These are people who don't, don't think they can learn anything from anyone to the point that they don't think that even exists. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, I don't, I don't care about IQ that much except for its explanatory power. Like until the last few years, I never gave it any thought at all. Like it was, I knew what my mind was since I was a kid and like, whatever I, I, I have no investment in it. 
It's just that as I started looking at this other stuff, really at the other end, looking at racial data and realizing, you know, the average IQ in Africa is 70 or below. Once I started learning what the societal implications were and learning how those things interacted, I realized the explanatory power that it has mm-hmm. because it's not, like I say in the IQ episode, I don't think everyone needs a test. I don't think you need your IQ like floating above your head. I don't care. But when you see different groups of people behaving differently and it turns out that there are these patterns, well, part of intelligence is, is pattern recognition. So mm-hmm. it's to me, the implications are why it matters. Otherwise, I wouldn't talk about it. And that's like we specifically did that episode to talk about the church, to talk mm-hmm. about, about the fact that if there's a group of people that are not smart enough to understand the future, well, if salvation's in the future, <laughs> you got to stay with them, yeah. or they're going to lose the they're going to lose the plot. And it, in a, as a matter of Christian love, then you need to stay with them. I'm not saying we'll, you know, forget about Africa; they're on their own. I think that they need missionaries, but that doesn't mean they come here, and we right. certainly don't put them in charge of church. So like, right. I right. care about the. I care about the practical implications and all these things because people in the church and everyone has these egalitarian priors. When, when I say some people are smarter than others, some people are more violent than others. They just have to freak out because the religion of the world is everyone's identical. Well, if that were true, fine. But if it's not true, then we still have to deal with reality. And so my con- our concern is we're picking topics for Stone Choir is let's just stick to reality. And yeah. sometimes it's more pragmatic episodes. Sometimes it's it's doctrinal episodes. But there's there's always an intersection of here's what we're doing wrong. Either we're lying to ourselves or we've forgotten something or we're setting ourselves up for failure down the road where we're getting away with it right now. But when these things come to fruition, we will have laid a trap for ourselves that if we don't see it today and course correct, then we're in trouble later. And, you know, again, like I'm comfortable being the guy that says, you know what, you're going to screw yourself in 20 years if you do this, <laughs> even knowing that most people are going to call me retarded. Like, okay, somebody's going to listen. They're going to benefit from it. And like I said, the thing that's made me really happy is that like wives and girlfriends are listening to this and say, yeah, that makes sense. People just completely normal are hearing the things that are the edgiest things on the internet. So yeah, right. I, that, that makes well, sense. Well, but you just because revealed that you do value people getting something valuable out of what you're saying. So you do care in some sense that what you're doing is having a positive impact. I think what you, what you mean is when you say you don't care what people think is like, if you have detractors that are not intellectually honest, maybe, and they, they dismiss you, you are willing to not engage with those types because it's maybe a waste of time, but you are, I would imagine wanting to have some effect on some people in a positive way and, and maybe learn from them also. But, uh, that's just how I am. But I, I I couldn't imagine if you were talking and you had no listeners that that would not be a sign that maybe you need to figure something else out, but you do have listeners. So I think that that is a a signal to you that you're onto something and I would encourage that. But, but I think you do need to be somewhat receptive also. Like you have to make sure that, you know, you, you got something that's good, right? Yeah, no, that, that's a very good clarification. When I say I don't care, I don't, I know that people are going to hate me and call me retarded and I'll never get any credit. And then in 10 years, they're going to believe what I said and forget I ever told them. Right. That's what I want. I don't, I don't. Got it. Like, got it. Pseudonymous. I, I don't care about me. I don't want anyone else to care about me. 
get these things right or you're right. going to make your lives worse. Right. And to the thread of some of our other conversation, that's why I think Christianity matters because it's not just self-help advice. I think that when you actually do and believe the things in Scripture, your life is better. And it's not that it's a self-help manual. It's, it's that if God is the creator of the universe and he made us and established order for our lives, just as he established order for the Milky Way, when we go against that order, we hurt ourselves. Even if we don't know anything about God, we, we hurt our bodies, we hurt our society, we make everything worse. And if you believe scripture, you won't be making those mistakes. You'll be making things better. Mm-hmm. And like, it's, that's pragmatic, but it's not, I, I see that intersection of when we do what the creator of the world wants us to do, we're blessed for it because that's the way it was designed. If there'd never been any sin, if everyone had just always been doing what God had intended for humanity, everything would be perfect. Like, it, you know, it sounds like a stupid Pollyannish thing, but, and it's not that we can achieve perfection. I think that's one of the, I mean, that's taken a long to try to reverse things. <laughs> and say we will, yeah, that's, you can't do that without God. You can't do a period, but that's no excuse not to obey. It's just do, do, you know, follow the rules, follow the rules of the system that were instituted by the creator of the system and everyone benefits. All right. So you, you, you said some Hebrew there. I think that's Hebrew, not Yiddish, but, (laughs) um, I, I gotta, I gotta bring it up now. Um, I wanted to anyway, but here's the opening. So, so much to ask. Uh, I apologize if this is random, but I just, I have, I've had so many questions about Christianity for so long and I rarely meet anybody who actually knows what they're talking about, but I, I finally found you. So maybe I can ask you some, some questions that have been bottled up a long time in me, but one of them, and and first of all, just for the audience and, and maybe for myself, if you can tell me if, if I understand what your position is and then we'll go from there. So there, there's the church now, Christianity, whatever the heck it is. Um, you might agree that it's, it's sort of like globalist. <laughs> like it doesn't have a, a, a sense of nation. You subscribe to Christianity, but sort of with borders where everybody can be saved, but they kind of need to be, you know, in a, a group, uh, a population of people that are like them. Am I on the right track so far with your position? Christian nationalism, is that yes. kind of what it is? Okay, got it. Yes. Now, um, then there's also scripture, which you could just, it's an individual thing where you can kind of learn from it. You can, these are lessons that are imparted to us from, from God, from Jesus, from his apostles, people like that. You can do that anywhere. You should do that. Okay. So that, that's, that's sort of uh, the proverb stuff. Uh, My questions, I guess, um, are the old Testament is the Jewish part of the Bible. The new Testament is the Christian part of the Bible. And they kind of get blended together, depending on whom you're talking to, in this like weird Judeo-Christian thing. Some Jews reject the New Testament. Some Jews are okay with it, especially if these are evangelical types that love Israel. And then there are Christians that don't trust Jews, but they don't seem to be very common anymore. But traditionally, that used to be more the case. What is that intersection like between the Christians and the Jews? Can you Can you expand on that and what's going on today with that? Sure. Uh, we actually did an episode a month ago called Hebrews, Israelites, and Jews, where we specifically deal with this. 
one framing correction to the way you place that to i i am a young earth creationist i believe that god created the year the universe six thousand years ago wow okay. i believe that I, I believe that God created a 13.8 billion year old universe 6,000 years ago. Hmm. I believe that God created a four and a half billion year old Earth 6,000 years ago. Interesting. I you know, I believe that God created Adam as a full grown man. He wasn't a fetus gestating in a box. Hmm. He was an he was an adult, sexually mature male. He had an age when he was zero days old. So, I'm a literalist when it comes to Genesis. The, the reason I bring that up, the 6,000 years particularly, is that Jews, the Israelites, only occupy 2,000 years of history. The first 2,000 years from Adam through Abraham was about 1,500 years after that. And then, let's see, I, it's late and I'm tired. Basically, for the, for the first, yeah, 1,500 years after Adam— there was Abraham. About 500 years after that was Moses. Or sorry, no, Moses first, then Abraham. So I'm, I'm getting some basic stuff backwards. Abraham came first, and then Moses. And so when hmm. 2,000 years after Adam was created, God gave Abraham the promise of the Messiah through his line. And his grandson, Jacob, was named by God Israel. And God promised him as well that the messiah would come through his lineage so that's the very first appearance of well, i think abraham might have been called hebrew i can't remember the first person he called called hebrew but it was in that time and there's there's speculation that the etymology of hebrew may just mean across the river on that side of the river so it wasn't anything special it was just kind of a descriptor for the next 2,000 years between then and the birth of Jesus at, you know, 1 AD, that was 2,000 years where the Jewish period of history occurred. So the reason that's important is that prior to Abraham, they all still believed in the promise of the Messiah, because in, in Genesis 3.15, the, the proto-Evangelion was, Evangelium was given to Adam, that the the serpent's head would be crushed hmm. that was a prophecy of jesus and so everyone from adam on believed in the prophecy of the messiah and in genesis 4 it talks about how eve thought that when she gave birth to cain he she thought that maybe that was the messiah that was perhaps the promised one the, hmm. it, it's, it's possible that, that was what she was saying the way she says behold i've begotten a man phrase the same way is the promise of them given. So Adam believed in the promise of the Messiah. Noah also believed in the promise of the Messiah. You know, the flood occurred. I can't remember the dates again. I'm, I'm tired. I, I should have, oh, we, I should we, remember this stuff. We, we, we can wind it down in, in, in a bit. No, but, no, no, no. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to. I, I'm just embarrassed. Okay. I'm, I'm botching simple stuff. Um, anyway, the, the flood occurred. Moses was also a believer. Moses was not a Jew. Abraham was not. Adam was not a Jew. They were they were men. Right. And so Adam was the father of all men. Noah also became the father of all men because all but eight people on the ark died. Everyone else died in the global flood. And every man since has been descended from Noah as well. And 
incidentally, we talk about in, in the race episode, the genetics of that or that the reason for the variations, the reason that they're you know basically kind of the broader African, Asian and European families are because there were three wives on the ark with Noah's sons. They had 10 generations between Adam and Noah who, you know, they, there was genetic variation among them. They were they were not closely related. So all the genetic variations we say, see today don't need to be explained by macroevolution. They can be explained simply by the fact that there were three unrelated women on the ark with them, and mm-hmm. everyone's descended from one of those three women. So Noah was a believer, but he wasn't a Jew. He, you know, God credited his belief as righteousness. The same was true of Abraham. It wasn't until Israel, it wasn't until Jacob that the first man was called Israel. And then for 2,000 years, the Jews were a racial bottle being bobbed through the ocean, preserving both the word and the promise of the Messiah and the lineage, which is what the promise included. And then when Jesus was born, he fulfilled the Jewish period of Christianity. So Mary, Mary was a Jew. She was also a Christian because when the angel came to her and said, you, you will be with child, she believed it. She said, but how can this be? Because I've not yet known a man, hmm. but she, you know, she wasn't confused. She knew the promise of the Messiah because she had preserved it, which was in contrast to most of the Jews in that day. You know, most of the Jews were like the Pharisees. They didn't believe in many cases. They didn't believe in the afterlife. That was the case with the Sadducees. You know, they just they kind of given up on those promises and had gone off completely into the law, which was the Pharisees, where we will, you know, we have these 613 laws. This is how we justify ourselves. That's how Paul described himself as, as the Jew of Jews. He was like, he was the greatest Pharisee of his day, despite being one of the youngest. And he described, once he was converted, how he had been so proud of his adherence to the law, but as a Jew, not believing in the promise of the Messiah. And Jesus had to appear to him on the road to Damascus and blind him and say, here I am. You've been persecuting me. You're going to repent. And he did. And mm-hmm. from then on, he would, Saul became Paul. And since then, we've had the, the Christian period of the church. You know, we call it the, the church age. But it's the, the point of all that is that it's Christianity throughout. When, when mm-hmm. Scripture says that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, it was faith in the promise of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. 2,000 years later. So he was a Christian, and he wasn't a Jew because it wasn't until his grandson was born that he was even called Israel. So so E. Michael Jones basically says that the Jews are basically those that reject Christ. Would you agree or disagree with that characterization? And and I, I apologize to EMJ if, if I'm like saying it wrong, but I, I roughly sure. remember him saying I, that in, in broad strokes. It's it's part of the reason we did a two-hour episode because right? there's a lot to cover. There's I, one of the out. things that, you know, one of the hard parts that we have in the dissident space where there are guys who don't really understand Christianity, but they know that Jews are bad news. <laughs> they either <laughs> they either want to to pin everything on the Jews or completely exclude them entirely. So some people will say, you know, like all the Jews today are. Either they're clearly descended from them, or they can't have anything to do with them. I think it's a mixture of both. I, I think that when you look at the genetics of the modern Jews, they're about 50 or 60% Jews trace back to those ages. Uh-huh. And the rest of it has been the product of, frankly, of the curse of miscegenation, where God scattered them, just as in the, in the Second Temple period, God yeah. 
know, the, the Samaritans came about through being conquered by Babylon. And so God has always used foreign conquerors and race mixing to punish people. And the Jews then and now are are the fruits of that. Hmm. I, well, aren't most races at some point mixed? You know, some of it is, I don't know if you believe in any evolution, but I mean, some of it seems to be environmental. Some of it is genetic mixing to me, but we don't have to get into the weeds on that if you don't want to. Yeah, there, there, there's absolutely admixture. No, it's, it's just that in particular, because the Jews were so adamant about the purity of their blood and they are to this day despite yeah. the fact that it's yeah, a definitely fraud now and more and more yeah that's, that's true yeah, yeah. so i to the most of the jews are those today you can either be a christian or you can be a jew you cannot be both anyone just as in, in paul's day right. to become christian is to cease to be jewish that was not the case between jacob and the birth of Jesus. Like it meant something at that time because the covenant was specific again, to preserve the promise. So I I guess personally, part of my like misunderstanding or or disagreement with Jones is when he says, you know, (laughs) those that reject or Jews are the, are those that reject Christ. That implies that everybody rejects Christ as a Jew. Maybe that doesn't necessarily follow logically, but the Romans were not Jews, but they rejected him. Right. So right there, it just, I, I don't know. It's too simplistic to me, but in any case, um, yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> so what I was getting at I'm was not sure exactly uh, what point he was making. It doesn't matter. It, it, it's fine. I'll let him explain his point if he wants to. Um, he came on our show, uh, you know, I, I respect the man, cool. smart guy, but, uh, yeah. uh, in any case, um, the, uh, I don't really have a clear question, but it's just, it, it's a broad topic, obviously of the sort of relationship between Christians, Jews, and other religions as well. Um, but to, to sort of hone it down to maybe a particular question uh, and and to offer up maybe some clarification for those that haven't examined this, uh, like uh, Woe obviously has, and myself to a much lesser degree. But recently I did look into this particular question, which I'll ask you to clarify. I asked a, a Christian girl who whom I have respect for, who was explaining to me why she believes in Jesus and, and what, what the Bible is about. And for her, it was basically because she believes this was true. This, all this stuff happened and not, it wasn't just like made up or something because mm-hmm. the prophecies that were uh, foretold in the old Testament were fulfilled when Jesus appeared that that's the basis of her argument. And I was sort of like, okay, can you give me some examples? And some of them like, okay, like that, that's pretty extraordinary. Like, I don't know though. Like was there, a, there's no video, right? So can you point me to this? And so I, it depended on what the example was, but I was sort of trying to drill down to all the prophecies. And if I, if I assume that those were fulfilled, I, I, I see her point And that made sense to me. Um, I just, I don't know, but I'm, I'm open-minded to it. But in any case, um, she was sort of talking about the Jews and sort of how they like, wouldn't recognize that these prophecies were fulfilled. Uh, and that's kind of what, maybe what EMJ was getting at. Is that correct so far? Is it, am I, am I understanding what, what's going on here between the old and the new Testament and the Jews and the Christians or clarify, please. 
Yeah, that was absolutely the case. I mean, again, the the Jewish period of Christianity from you know 2000 BC to the birth of Christ was specifically to preserve those prophecies. Uh, there, you can find lists online. I, I've seen some that are like 100 mm-hmm. or so. There's some yes. that are up to like, like 379. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but yeah. Yeah, and that was that was part of the reason that a Moses had been given the written. Torah, the, the written law, mm-hmm. so that there would be a record to be preserved through time, which incidentally they they misplaced, they lost it at some point, forgot they even had it, and then uh, King Josiah found it in the temple, or one of one of his priests, Hilkiah was named a priest, as they were repairing the temple, they found part of the Torah and realized that they'd forgotten it existed, which I think shows you like stuff keeps going wrong, even when people are trying to be faithful, there are still serious stumbles. The, the preservation of that throughout time was necessary so that when Christ came, it would be clear to those at, the, at that time and then in the future. Uh, one of the things I think we make the point in, in one of our episodes, I, I personally believe that Jesus had to be born among the Jews because I don't think anyone else would have murdered him when <laughs> When, or had when him you murdered. Look at, yeah. <laughs> the Romans did yeah, well, it, they, but they, like, were, they egged him on, right? Well, that, they, they kept bug, bugging the Romans to do it, right? So that, That's another part of, of the episode. There is, the New Testament is replete with direct repudiation of the Jews for the murder of Christ. Peter says to their faces, you killed Christ. The Romans were the proximate cause, but even Pilate... Well, they like, pulled the trigger. The nail not to do it. The, the, yeah. the Romans were the tip of the spear in those days, or in modern parlance, they were the bullet, but they didn't fire the gun, yeah. basically. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, okay, I'll just ask it then. What, what, what should be the relationship between Jews and Christians today, do you think? Or, or talk about maybe the history and what was right, what was wrong, and if you can maybe expand on that. Do you think everybody should be a Christian or can, can we live in a world where there are people that are not Christian like the Jews or other religions, for example, Islam, you know, it's a big one. I think that goes to the, the question of headship within nations. I think that Mm -hmm. Europe was Christianized because again, I, I, I see a direct continuity between the father being the head of a household and everyone in his household, including slaves. You know, anyone who is under his roof is beholden to the father. He's he's the head of a household. That that used to mean a lot more than it does today. Mm-hmm. You know, today, it's just kind of a it's something on the census. But when that, for example, that's that's why there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor nor free. When a, when a household was converted in the first days of Christianity, it was everyone. The father would come to faith by hearing, and then he would say, okay, we're all Christians. Everyone gets baptized. Slaves, children, wife, everyone. Whether they liked it or not, you know, the idea of this consent-based mm-hmm. religion wasn't the case, and it wasn't necessarily violent, forcible conversion. It's just, well, the head represents the body. And I think that monarchy works the same way writ large. And I think we see that in the history of European nations as the as the potentates, as the monarchs converted, the people by and large did too. They very quickly fell on the line. 
and it goes in both directions. We talked earlier about Obama. And he's like, you know, all bets are off. That was kind of open season for everyone agreeing. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that it's – I think that religious pluralism, as it was originally conceived in the U.S., I can go along with or in the colonies where it was – you can be any sort of Christian you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, and that's it. And it's, it's not a – and it's not a question of, of forcibly converting people. It's, you know, part part of the trick of talking about these subjects is that there's a, you were talking about bridging. How do you bridge from what I think things should be to where and where they are today? There's no easy way to get from where things should be to to where we are today. There's no way to unwind all this mess. And so, I can you can discuss these things in kind of hypothetical terms and say what what the ideal is. Yeah. People want to take that as a personal threat, like, oh, you're going to convert me. Well, I think you should be Christian because I think that it's true. I say, you know, I say that to everyone. I think that everyone should believe, and there are different arguments to different people, but ultimately faith is a gift received from God. You know, the, the way that the, the faith is propagated in Scripture, it's, it's just, you know, the, the parable of the sower and the seed. The seed is cast, and sometimes it finds fruitful soil, sometimes it finds rocky soil. The sower isn't worried about the quality of the soil. He just has to lay the seed down. And so God gives the growth where where faith is going to grow. And it's up not up to the individual to shake people by the throat and say, you got to believe, you got to believe. Uh, nations, it's, I, I want every nation to be Christian. By nation, I mean race and country. I think those should be synonymous. I think where they're not, you suffer. I don't think that I don't think that other races should be here. And you know, most of them weren't you know, we in the episode where we talk about one of the at race episodes, I say I don't think the Africans should be here. And I think that's consistent with what people on the far left say. They say they were kidnapped, they were brought here. <laughs> they shouldn't be here. But Honestly, but somehow but somehow they're better off if we keep them now. And and yeah, yeah it's right. it's completely illogically inconsistent. It's it's logically inconsistent. Yeah. Um so for, for anyway. me on the right to say I think they should live in Africa, it's not hatred. I think that they should be with their own people on their own soil. I think that they would benefit from that. And I well, think that we would too. So, so would we, yeah, to be honest. So Yeah. And and you're like and again, I think that when you do what God says, you benefit from it. I I don't think there's a coincidence there. I don't think that man created Christianity to kind of be a, a self-helper and advice column. I think that, that God revealed mm. this stuff, and when we obey, sure. things work out, and we disobey, it stinks. Do, do you think there's anything that is not in the Bible that is worth, I guess, having a, maybe not same, but maybe approaches a, a conviction uh, as to how to conduct yourself in life? Um you could you could call it maybe a secular or a non-Christian um, set of proverbs or parables or principles that you can hold. Do you think the Bible has everything, or or is there other stuff that is also good? Do you think, like philosophically, it's not a manual. It's you know one of the things that Scripture talks about is that creation itself also reveals god and not in a way that's salvific but naturally ordered things are self-evident 
you know, one of the examples that's given in Romans, Romans 1, talking specifically about homosexuality is that anyone knows this is wrong. Anyone knows that this is an abuse of the body to engage in this behavior. And you, you don't need the Bible to tell you that because man naturally understands that. And when man does something contrary to it, he suffers. You know, the body suffers for it. I think that's true of, of many things. So <clears throat> when you use an example from, and th this is maybe unrelated to what I was asking, but since you brought it up, it, it reminds me of stuff that I run into a lot. I will meet people like yourself and then I will meet other people that maybe are left leaning or whatever you might describe, but roughly let's just say they're on the left that would say that, you know, the, the Bible is about, you know, love and it's about accepting people like homosexuals. And I don't have enough knowledge of scripture to really argue with them on a Christian basis. I can just sort of reason from my own point of view and my understanding of things. Um, you might be able to argue from a biblical sense, but they might argue and, and I can't put you both in the same room, but I'm just like trying to hypothetically put you in front of them. Would you be able to come to terms with somebody who would be like, you know, Hey, my son is gay. You know, I don't think he should be kicked out of the church. I want him to be part of the church. Is part of you like, well, okay, maybe it's, you know, I'll just compromise. Maybe it's better just to like have somebody in the church, maybe if they're homosexual, or would you say you need to get out or reform them? I mean, there's so many angles to this and there's so many different interpretations. I don't really know what is the doctrine of truth. I just, I hear different people citing different things from the Bible or citing, you know, rough approximations of what the Bible seems to mean to them. So I'm very confused by it all. So can you clarify like what or, or a way to like reconcile this or like how, how to go about situations like this? Like how do you resolve these disagreements when it comes to things like citing scripture that seem to maybe contradict or, you know, I, I don't know if I made my point, but it's very confusing for me uh, to try to see what, what is the Christian way? I don't, I don't really know. It goes back to when we were talking earlier about just speaking truthfully, saying, saying what God says the way he says it. And so I, the, part of the question, I think, was predicated on the notion of if someone's a sinner, we need to drive them out of the church, which is what's been done to Corey and to me, which mm -hmm. is absurd because everyone is a sinner. Everyone needs God's forgiveness. Yes. And yes. We one of the episodes we did was specifically on degrees of sin because one of the problems is that's crept into the church today is people saying, if all sins are equal, then I can't possibly tell someone else that he's sinning because I'm a sinner too. <laughs> and what that if I say that you are sinning and you're hurting yourself and you're hurting your relationship with God, that's not hatred. That's no. love. That's right. saying I I care about the fact that you're injuring yourself. I you're agree. doing something that's evil. You're doing something harmful. And so okay. I, I reject love. the premise. It's, it's tough love. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, again, it gets to the, we were talking about, you know, Christian nations. We're in the middle of a mess where we've been making so many of these mistakes for so long that there's no clean way to undo the damage. If, on the other hand, someone had been saying all along, 
sodomy is evil. Homosexuality is a sin. It's not permissible and it's not tolerable. There would be far fewer. There would be almost none. Because we've all seen that these behaviors are social contagions. As much as they're sins, they're also lifestyles in the sense that now, like, if you're a white man, engaging in homosexual behavior is really the only way that you can opt on to the the rainbow flag. You have no other options to be other. Yeah. And so that's that's social. That's not I mean, it's moral, but the moral argument to prevent us from getting there needs to be made all along. Otherwise, someone's got to come along and be the heavy. Someone's got to be the bad guy and say what you're doing is bad. I it is. It's a very tough question when you get into the middle of these situations, because unwinding the damage, it's controversial. It's it's is difficult. And frankly, some people will fall away when you when you confront someone with their sin, even if they've been in the church. If you say what you're doing is a barrier to the, your salvation, some of them will say, OK, I'm gone. And mm-hmm. you don't God doesn't desire that and we don't desire that. But if that's what they're going to do when they're told what God says, that's free will. They they have the right. choice to do that. Well, there is, but do you also think there's a degree of diplomacy that can be conducted with people like this that it's sort of, you know, like you're talking to Vladimir Putin. You have to be calculated in how you approach him because he's got a personality and there are ways to get what you want and maybe what he wants that are more effective than others. And I, I would use that example, for example, and, and basically start accusing him and and being argumentative is probably not the approach with that type of guy. Um, I think he's very big on saving face, for example. And I think most people are like that. And I think diplomacy is a thing. And I don't know if there's a diplomatic way to say what you're saying, or maybe the way you're saying it is the right way. But I would just offer that maybe there's techniques of persuasion, perhaps that any, any leader can, can, can learn to bring people over to their side. Um, I've absolutely, I've, yeah, I, yeah, it's hard. I, but, I don't you know, think, yeah. you know, Westboro Baptist is not the right approach. That's, could you, that's could you remind me of what that approach is? I, I don't, I've heard of they them, were the, but I don't remember. Westboro Baptist, they were the ones who were picketing, uh, funerals for homosexuals and oh. for soldiers. They're the ones with the God hates fag signs and uh, stuff that, like no, that. Don't do that. No, yeah. No, exactly. But like, that's, that's the absolute wrong way to approach. And frankly, this is part of what pastors are supposed to be taught. Pastors are the ones who are supposed to, even if no one else in the congregation can confront these things, pastors, it's the same root as shepherd. God refers to us as sheep, which is clearly apt. God gives us shepherds to help keep the sheep in the sheepfold. (laughs) And sometimes that involves gentle correction. Mm -hmm. And Every situation is different. Yeah. The yeah. So there's absolutely technique and like the right way to approach this in a loving way that's going to try to achieve the desired end. The 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 desired end is not to condemn someone. It's just bring someone to repentance. And so, however you present that, if it's going to maximize the opportunity for them to repent, you do it. But ultimately, the repentance is the goal. And if they're going to harden their hearts and say, I don't care. I would rather have this lifestyle than have salvation. You can't, you can't capitulate, which is really where the church is at this point. Mm. It's like, Oh, well that's fine. You know, and even in the LCMS, half of the 
half of the people in the pews say that homosexual marriage is okay now, which is insane. Mm. Like that, that's literally not the definition of scriptural marriage. Yeah. So it's, it's one thing to discuss things in a, in a frank, but loving way. And it's another thing just to completely concede the point. And again, we're so feminized that we can't, all we can do is say, okay, well, I love you anyway. That's not love. That's, that's letting someone march to their destruction yeah. while you pat them on the back and say you're fine. Yeah, no, it's it's Be, feminine. And, and I think there's a role for femininity, by the way, but I also think there's masculinity that matters too. And we've completely, well, I think, you talk to a leftist, they think the opposite, honestly, because I have talked to them and they, they, they think we're living in some kind of theocratic regime, which is just bonkers to me. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, maybe if Netflix is, is the, the, the temple, but, uh, and I use temple as a, I use that on purpose, by the way, but not the church, but um, in any case, uh, yeah, so feminine, sure, and but I'm not against that. I just think we got no balance and we need some, you know, tough love, masculine stuff. Uh, another thing I've heard, and, and I'll try to wind this down for you because I know it's late, um, a big one, I, I, I'm... Uh, I'm really curious what you think. So what is this don't judge thing? I've heard this from Christians a lot. Is that, is that a Christian thing or is that like leftism? We have an entire stone choir episode. on. <laughs> really? I got to listen to this. <laughs> yep. No, I, I argue with yeah. everyone about this. Why is it such a problem? <laughs> We did an episode in April called Judge Not. We spent an hour and a half specifically dealing with that. That's funny. It's The the short version is there are two different kinds of judgment. Uh There's the judgment of the jurist to determine whether or not a fact is true. That's determining if something is sin. Is homosexuality sin? Yes. Scripture says so. Is someone doing it? Yes. Let's sin. The other type of judgment is the judicial judgment of passing sentence, Uh which we are not permitted to do. Okay. I am not permitted to say you're going, you're, you're to going hell. to hell. Yeah. 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 Yes. You're not God. You're I not saying who's the saint at the gates. I can't remember St. Augustine or something, but yeah. yeah. St. Peter, St. Peter. <laughs> Peter. That's right. Yeah. Thank yes. you. <laughs> yeah. So it's that, that's, that's a big part of it, but there are many other passages in scripture that literally say we are commanded to judge in, in specific mm, circumstances, interesting. It, but it has to do with this. We're, one of the passages says we will will judge angels. So certainly we can judge within the church whether or not someone is conducting himself in a Christian manner. And so, yeah, we did a whole episode on that very question. You should mm. listen to it. Yeah, and, no, it sounds good. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's yeah. the reason that Stone Choir exists is that churches are screwing these things up because they're adopting secular MSNBC yeah. values. They're getting along with the world by abandoning God. And if you do that, you got nothing left but but MSNBC, and I don't want to live in that world. Well, tell me what you think, because I, I've always just suspected that that whole don't judge thing is, it, it, it sort of like reeks of communism to me. It's like you, you have somebody who has something they're basically just what Kaczynski said, like they have an inferiority complex. And so they don't want people who are in their minds, frankly, superior to them, reminding them, oh, you're fat, you know, well, you can't judge (laughs) like, okay, look, dude, you can't even fit in the seat, you know? So, you know, anyway, but, um, there's just so many examples of that, that I've run into where it, 
underneath it, it just seems to be kind of a, a selfish motivation to have an excuse basically. And at the same time, giving them some like grace here, I will say that there are people who take judgment to an extreme where they act as if they're St. Peter or God or somebody up on a, uh, the, the judge's seat, whatever that thing's called, the, the, the you know, not the podium, but whatever that is, the high chair, um, where they've got a gavel. <laughs> like it's kind of an arrogant thing to, you know, throw stones at people and, you know, cause we all sin. Right. And so within reason, I think people can judge and should judge. And like we all do. And I've always said that word is an important word because when you exercise good judgment, you are deciding not to drive into that tree. You are steering the steering wheel in a careful, thoughtful way. And some people say, well, you know, that's like discernment. It's not judgment. Like, okay, maybe, but I don't know. I, I just, I, I have deep suspicions about this. Like it's kind of a leftist thing. Like don't judge because I think there's an inferiority complex beneath it. What do you think of that theory? Yeah, it's there. It's cope. I mean, the, the, the theological term for it is typically antinomianism against the law. Hmm. It's the notion that I don't—it's almost always someone who's covering something up in yes. their own lives. Yes. That's it, yes. which is, is, again, fundamentally hypocrisy. But it's, it's a shield of hypocrisy. You can judge me. Well, yeah, you probably don't want me to. But again, if, if you're looking at it as, in terms of finders of fact— well, I can I can absolutely judge anyone's life. I can tell you if you're eating too much. Mm-hmm. I can tell you if you're not sleeping right. Like right. that's just that's that's pattern recognition. That's observation. And the fact that sometimes the moral law is involved doesn't change the fact that I can tell just from observation what's going on. But I can't sit in eternal judgment. There's a there's a passage in the book of Jude where it describes Satan wrestling with the archangel Michael for Moses' body, which is kind of a strange scene. And it just mentions that when Michael was wrestling with Satan, fighting him for Moses' body, rather than Michael saying, damn you, to Satan, he said, the Lord rebuke you. And Jude specifically highlights that even Michael mm. would not say, damn you, to Satan. And so that's hmm. one of the reasons it's it's that it's such a serious thing for us. And I, I certainly feel this. I say I shouldn't, but I do Yeah. because, yeah. but God is saying, no, that's mine. That doesn't belong to anyone else. Right. Even if it's Satan, who's clearly damned. Right. <laughs> and Michael, who clearly knows that's still out of bounds. So that's the sort of judgment that's not permitted. But okay. in terms of weighing evidence and saying, this is going to hurt. That's you, a really absolutely. good distinction. Yeah. It's, it's basically don't judge somebody's admittance into heaven or hell. But on the, uh, what is it, the corporeal plane, not the ethereal plane, the world, or the, mm-hmm. the earth. I mean, you, you can exercise, I think, a fair amount of agency on your own life, but also observe others and, and make a comment or two. And if they disagree, that's fine. But I just don't like this, like, don't use your brain. Don't be critical of anything. I understand. Don't be you know hypocritical, right? Well, what does that actually mean? It's like Latin or Greek or something. It's like, it means that there's not enough criticism. And in that case, it's not of yourself. But I would also say, well, you know, if other people are bad, you know, criticize them, right? Do something about it. So, yeah. 
and and the the warning although you can't judge in in the sense of saying you're going to hell declaring in the future i can absolutely say that if you are an unrepentant homosexual and you reject god and engage in that you will go to hell Hmm. because if you're despising god's law and despising christ's sacrifice for that sin then you don't receive christ's sacrifice for that sin if you say this isn't a sin i'm keeping this for myself god will acknowledge that ownership on judgment day that's what scripture says yeah so you you can say you're going you're on the path to hell if you do this you will be damned if you do this in particular in the church you know Corey was falsely excommunicated by the lcms in which in 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 our polity means the church said that he's going to hell they said he's going to hell literally for misogyny that was one of the four charges against him to give you some idea of the state of things misogyny is wait, wait how, yep. what does that have to do with christianity though that's like a, 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 a secular term. Like a, yes. And a communist term, if you ask me. But, okay. Yeah. So, but the scripture says that the church has the obligation to judge such matters, mm. but it has the obligation to judge them faithfully. Like mm. it's, it's, it's a separable question. Can the church corporally do this and can it do it right? Yes, the church should. And it really has to get it right because that's again that's destructive to the faith of observers to see if, if a church excommunicates a man for misogyny or other misogynists who believe what the Bible says about men and women and their relations going to mm-hmm. come to that church? No. So it's, it's chasing men who would seek to be faithful away from the one place where they should be able to find faithfulness yeah. described. Yeah, and and I had another thought, but on that topic of misogyny. I don't, it, just to show you how skewed the culture is, I think there is, I think it's like, uh, I don't even remember, it, it, but misandry maybe, like the hatred of men, but mm-hmm. there, there is a word that means basically like the, the opposite of that, like from women towards men. And I definitely think that exists. But the fact that like I had to struggle to think, and I'm not even sure if that's the right word, just goes to show you it how is. culturally skewed America is at least towards the feminine where they're the perpetual victim and male victimhood doesn't even exist like in the words. <laughs> Astonishing. And, and it, it does. And, and I'm not saying like females are not victims ever. I mean, of course, everybody's like, it, it's, it's statistically impossible to say that one group never has anything bad done to them. I mean, it's just, it's sort of ridiculous on its on every level, but in any case, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not a man or a woman hater here. It's just, I'm pointing out and observing that we don't have the words to describe maybe female, uh, sins and those exist too, just like male sins yep. do. Right. It's crazy. That, is, yeah. that is endemic in the church. And what's, what's ironic about that is that in the garden after Adam sinned, God cursed the, the serpent he cursed Eve and he cursed Adam. And the serpent or the, the curse that God gave to Eve was, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Mm. So the opposition of a woman to her head, her husband, is part of the curse. <laughs> yeah, that's, like, I think you, every you, man knows entire, that one. <laughs> yeah, but like that's the that's the entire manosphere in a nutshell yeah. in Genesis three sixteen. Like so, when when I try to say that there's a, it's not 
it's not sort of an intellectual synthesis of scripture in reality. I honestly believe, like, the reason that I believe in in Jesus, you asked that girl a question, I was raised this way. I was, I was, I've been Christian my whole life. Mm. However, any time I look at the world and maybe my reason is running out of like, I don't know, I explain this. How do I explain why women act this way? Mm-hmm. And I look in scripture and it explains why women act this way. It explains why all of these things happen. So wherever my limited faculties fall short, mm-hmm. God is always there saying, well, here's how it works. I'm telling you. Yeah. And you know, I, you overlook it your whole life and then you see that fashion like, Oh, that makes sense. So for me, uh, yeah, women are kind of like a test, like, you know, you can maybe <laughs> it's like a, a, the entry level exam to the next level of life. But if you can figure that one out, you could maybe get further. <laughs> Just that's how I ra- rationalize it. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're tricky. <laughs> And that's, that's a big reason why so much of the manosphere has informed politics. And a lot of those guys have ended up migrating from, in many cases, you know, lifestyles of fornication. Oh, into like, the like Roosh, in, you know, for example. Yeah. 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 What and do you think lot, about you know, Milo? Uh, he's an ex-gay. <laughs> no, he isn't. I know. Isn't. I'm just saying what he says. But <laughs> I, I don't. He, he is the dark the, prince. Yeah. He's, I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's is that a, that bib- is a bib- biblical a phrase? A dark prince, like I know the dark lord is like that's Satan or something, but what's a dark prince? Yeah, the he's prince, ser- servant of Satan, or the prince and principalities are one of the degrees of angels or demons. It's it's one of the ranks. He's wow, he's absolutely he he's he's upper management. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, he certainly um, has capabilities so that would make sense for him being in management. Maybe they're they're for nefarious purposes, but um, so well, it, it's possible that he 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 converted or changed, right? But you just you suspect it, and I share that suspicion, by the way, but. These are the examples, right, where, and Roosh, you know, for example, actually, I, I kind of like the guy, um, just, you know, where I'm yeah. coming from, but I believe him. I think he's genuine, actually. And, yes. um, and it makes sense, too. He burned out on this shit. I mean, it's like, how, how many, like, apartments that are empty are you going to live in for the rest of your life? I mean, I think he's smart enough to realize that, but also his, his sister, you know, got cancer, and, and he's talked about this, so I'm not revealing anything, but. But yeah, so I guess the question, and then I'll, I'll try to wrap it up. Um, how do you, why do you believe Roosh, and then why do you not believe Milo? Where they both kind of led somewhat unchristian lives, but now they're they're trying to like apparently, what they say is go Christian. You believe one, you don't believe the other. What what's the distinction there? And then what what does that mean has- actually to be a Christian? Right, it's like how does one qualify and one doesn't like he's sincere or he's done certain things or he's, he's memorized a certain number of passages or he's gone to church. Like, I think these are genuine questions. A lot of people don't have answers to like, what does it even mean to be a true Christian? I guess it's the the general question. They both led evil lives before their so-called conversions. Mm -hmm. The difference is that when Roosh, converted in his case he he returned to the the orthodox faith that he had been brought brought up in as a child 
he, he changed his ways. He threw away a lot of money. I personally, for his sake, I, I wish that he had stepped away entirely because again, he's one of those guys who spent his whole life talking. Mm-hmm. And when he shifted gears, rather than becoming a student and shutting up, he felt the need to keep talking. Mm. Like, I don't, I don't fault him, but I would have, I think it would have helped him personally for his spiritual development if he'd stepped away entirely for a while, done learning for a few years, okay. and then come back and use his gifts for communication. Well, he has a complete, he has a gift for communication. I would not say it's it's yeah, bad what yeah. he's doing, but maybe yeah, be yeah, no, I, be I, a listener for a while is what you're saying. Yeah, yes, solely for his own sake. Like he just he couldn't yeah. step away. I, I think he would have benefited more. I, but it's not a question of insincerity. Milo, on the other hand, when you look at his pre-conversion and post-conversion behavior statements public appearances okay the only thing that changed he said hey i'm a christian now and yet he's still doing stuff that's clearly the previous sexual lifestyle like he didn't change except for his tune Mm. roosh did not change his tune he changed his life Mm -hmm. and his tune changed because his life changed i don't believe for a second that milo's life changed it didn't yeah his life didn't change he 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 changed course in terms of who he's influencing, but he's he's doing the same stuff. Like he was he was still living with his his boyfriend. Just <laughs> saying, oh, now it's platonic. Like, dude, no, that's not repentant. Okay. So yeah, it it, you know, it doesn't seem um, yeah. honest. Yeah, it seems like he's yeah not so walking the, fundamental the walk. Question, mm-hmm. So the fundamental question has nothing to do with the sinful lives they led before. You know, Paul was sinner of sinners. He was. His his job was murdering Christians. He went around murdering Christians. Wow. <laughs> that that that's what Saul did. And then Jesus came to Peter on the on the road to Damascus and converted him. And he became Paul and he was the chief evangelist for the church from then on. That's, so so God can redeem anyone. Okay. But the man has to actually follow through, which is God's work in his life, but right. it still has to be there. And I th- I think I think I know what you you you're you're exercising discernment in, in looking at these cases and I think you're doing it fairly and, and reasonably. And and I guess I was gonna throw you the straw man argument, but I, I think I think I know what you'd say, but I'll just do it anyway, just real quick. Um the the classic example and the critique perhaps of I don't know if it's just Christianity, but probably a lot of religions, frankly. In order to get into heaven, you have to do let's just take Christianity, for example, at least in some interpretations of it, you have to accept Jesus into your heart. You have to confess your sins, repent for them. I'm not sure what exactly what that means, but at least feel bad for them and apologize. Uh, I'm not sure if it means doing good works to reverse them, but if you take a serial killer or somebody and they've been doing these heinous things their whole life and then on their you know, death row day before they talk to the the priest who sent in to give the last rites and he repents and he becomes a Christian all of a sudden. Does he get into heaven? Is that enough? Or is there more to it than that? I don't know. So the, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. I don't know Greek. Like I'm, I'm not trying to flex here. It's one of yeah, like Greek, Greek's five like words I know. Very unique yeah. language. I don't know anything in it. Yeah. 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 So except logos. Metanoia, uh, thank you. Thank you. You might yeah. be logos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the word underlying the word that we use for repentance specifically, it means turning away. 
it doesn't simply mean I'm sorry, mm. or especially I'm sorry I got caught. Right. Like when when Jeff right. Zucker, when Jeff Zucker got caught at CNN, he was sorry he got caught. He was sorry he got called out. Yep. He was not repentant. Like he he put out a press release saying I'm sorry. Yeah, it wasn't I repentance. I think everybody because, knows. Yeah. Yeah. So Christian repentance is looking at your own actions and being disgusted by them in the past. Yes. When Paul when Paul looked at murdering Christians, he was horrified of his own actions. That's repentance. It's saying my actions in the past disgust me according to my new sanctified nature in God. Mm-hmm. This is no longer me. And so repentance is is fleeing in disgust from your life, which is, is exactly the difference between Milo and Roosh. Roosh fled from his past life. Mm-hmm. He went as far away in the opposite direction. Milo didn't even kick his boyfriend out. One is metanoia, and the other is is a grifter just changing, you know, PayPal accounts. Yeah. To no. to, to the question of the murder on on death row, we have an example in scripture. It's it's one that comes up a lot in in Baptist arguments against baptism, which is the thief on the cross. Jesus was crucified. There's a murder on one side. There's a robber on the other side. And they were both mocking him, mocking him for being the Messiah, saying, if you're, if you're the son of God, take yourself down off this cross. Mm. And the, the murderer was really digging into Jesus. And the other man, I don't remember the exact quote, but he effectively said, why, you know, they've been hanging up there for some time. He's like, we're both under the same condemnation of death as this man. Why would you mock him when he's less deserving than we are? We deserve to be up here, and he doesn't, because they knew that he was innocent. They knew that he had been railroaded. Right. And the, the thief on the cross said, I deserve to be up here. I, he was rightfully executed for being a robber. He knew he was going to die. He, and he, he told the other man on the cross, he said, I deserve to be up here. This man doesn't. Mm-hmm. And Jesus turned to him and said, this day you will be with me in paradise. Wow. He was, you know, the, the man was degenerate. Like, you know, it, it's, it's literally the, the, you know, hours of his life left. And Jesus said, that was it. The confession that this man is innocent. Yes. And, you know, so. And also having some empathy for him, it seems, and not mocking yeah, him, you know, selfishly. Yeah. It seems to contrast. That was that was a fruit of his belief. Now it was it was certainly an imperfect belief. I'm I'm sure that he knew, like he knew the prophecy of the Messiah, hmm. and so he he knew that Jesus was being sacrificed as a sacrificial lamb. That was his faith, and that was it. And one of the one of the things in Christianity is that faith is not intellectual assent. One, it's a gift from God. It's not something we do. It's something God gives to us, which hmm. is. Well, I said earlier, Lutherans call it the divine service and not the worship service, because we always want to emphasize that God is pouring his gifts out to us. It's not us grasping for things. The The example that, that I like to use is when Lazarus was dead in the tomb, and you know, the, it's the Jesus wept passage. Lazarus was, I think, his uncle, and it, Jesus family had called him and said, Lazarus is sick, come see him, because they knew that he could heal him before he died. They, he, had, he had been doing healing miracles. When he showed up, he waited until Lazarus was dead, and then he showed up. And so when he showed up, Lazarus is dead in the tomb, and Jesus wept, and he went to the, the graveyard, and he said, Lazarus, come out. Now, Lazarus was dead, 
And when Jesus spoke and said, Lazarus, come out, Lazarus got up and he came out and he walked out to meet him. I think that's an example of the sort of faith that God gives us, because if you want to make faith a question of intellectual assent, Hmm. then you have to disbelieve when it says that we're dead in our sins and trespasses, which the scripture says, as we're dead in our trespasses, just as Lazarus was. When Jesus spoke to him and said, Lazarus, come out, he caused it. He, he affected that change. Lazarus didn't say, oh, that sounds like a good idea. He was dead. He was utterly incapable of listening. And his obedience was obedience to the creator of the universe. Because the same God that spoke the universe into existence by saying, let there be light, said, Lazarus, come out. And so it was. And that is the way faith is given to us. It's not us going along with it. However, once we're given the faith, we do obey. And the obedience is the function of the faith. It's not the cause of it. What's the difference? Function, not the cause. It's, we're not saved because of anything that we do. We're saved solely because of what God does. And one of the things that God does for us is to make us able to obey him. Not perfectly. I see. Okay. So through his, his grace, we can, yes, but do you believe in free will? I mean, it seems like there's a choice on the three crosses, right? Well, two two crosses, the the robber and the murderer, I forget which, was being yeah. nice nice to Jesus. But he chose, I think, I don't know if you think, but he chose to say the words he chose to say, and that was enough for Jesus to grant him paradise. Is that, is that you know, God, or is that the man he- also? or both or, or one the, or the other the, the, the thief on the cross said that because he had saving faith when he said it he said it because he had faith and jesus acknowledged his faith yeah but the robber's faith was in jesus and the faith was a gift that existed beforehand okay. and certainly would have come by hearing so it's it, it's 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 really the intersection of almost all the disagreements in christian theology hmm. who's doing what yeah and and so the emphasis—it's important. It's—it's it's part of the reason for the effort of the Reformation. Uh, there's Pelagianism, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism. Who's doing it? Are we? Do we have complete free will to obey God? The the, the Lutheran answer, I believe, the scriptural answer is no. We only so God is the sole effectual cause of our salvation. We are the sole effectual cause of our damnation. So if someone is damned, it is solely because of what they do. If someone is saved, it's solely because of what God does. And we explain that in the election episode because it's irrational. It's one of the places where God's explanation for what he's doing doesn't make rational sense. If if you do the math on that, it doesn't add up. But Hmm. I I believe God when he says it. And if if I can't fit what God says in my mind, well, that's because I'm a creature and he's the creator. And that's another place where I'm just okay with it. I'm not going to argue. No, I think I think I know what you mean. It's it's sort of like we don't control the salvation. That's God. But I guess my question is, what do we control? And is that at all going to bear? You know, uh, have any bearing on salvation? Does, is God noticing? Is it like Santa Claus? Like, hey, you've been good. You know, kind of thing. So the. 
the term that I don't know how widely it's used outside of Lutheranism, but we call that sanctification. I think it's it's a it's a common Christian term. I just don't know how widely it's used. I don't know. Yeah. Justific- justification is how God imparts faith and imparts saving faith and the gifts from saving faith to us. That's God justified us on the cross. When we are saved, when we receive the gift of faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we then lead sanctified lives, where the sanctification is the inner working of the Holy Spirit within us to affect the sort of fruits that you see in Rusha's life. That is sanctification. He repented from his previous wicked life. He went in the opposite direction, and he's trying to do good things. And mm-hmm. whether he does them imperfectly or not, those are fruits of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not Rush saving himself. That is the fruit of God having saved him, hmm. giving him faith. And then, so in the, in the epistle of James, it's one of the it's one of the epistles that the Catholics like to use against Protestants to say, look, salvation comes from works and not only from God's what God does. I think that if you read James the same way I said you should read Galatians three twenty eight. James is talking, it's an epistle from James, who incidentally is, is Jesus' half-brother. He was the first He was the first bishop of Rome, not Peter. It's like <laughs> so, all Roman Catholic. So Mary had him with, with a man. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. With, with Joseph. They had many children. Yeah. Um, when, when James is writing, he's writing specifically to Christians, and he's describing to Christians what the Christian life looks like. And so he tells them things like, I can't remember the exact wording, but he, well, let me just look it up so I don't butcher it. It's James 2.18. Some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Mm. So it's, it's, it's not a question of I'm saved because of my, my works. James is saying, I can tell if you have faith because of your works, okay. which again is how I was able to tell that Roosh is sanctified and okay. Milo is not. Because the, the lifestyle that they're leading is consonant either with a sanctified life or one that's still in repentance. Well, I don't want to repeat myself. I'm, I'm, it's still a little mysterious to me, but I, I think I have a rough idea. I think the examples help. Like, okay, this guy, that's good. This guy, not so good. And I think intuitively most people know why. Um, and because it's late, I will not continue to probe you with more questions, but I, I think you've done a great job and thank you for coming on tonight. Um, I will check out more of your episodes and I hope uh, some of the people that might not be familiar with you will do the same because I think they'll enjoy it and learn a lot and maybe be on a good path going forward. Thank you. I appreciate the time. I had a lot of fun talking to you. This is good. I, I hope you talk to either me or Corey again. Like I said, I mean, Corey will answer some questions better be, you know, one of the questions you had posed when we were talking about this was uh, the ontological argument for God. I can't make that argument. I'm, I haven't read into it, but like my argument for God is basically that what I said earlier, when I, when I look at what's in scripture and I look at the faith that I have where I fall short, I'm smart. I still ran out of runway. God still explains the things that I can't explain. Mm-hmm. And then he explains in a way that, I can look at the world that's burning around us, and I can still make sense of it, not through my reason, but through the intersection of my reason and faith, what God has revealed and what I see with my own lying eyes. And I think that I I just want 
people in the church to be able to articulate these things in such a way that people who don't know what's going on won't be turned off by lies and lies and hypocrisy. Because again, I, we in the church should want everyone to be saved. We don't want to chase off anyone who's a sinner, who's an unbeliever. Those are the people who need God. We all need that. But we have to be honest and we have to be faithful and we have to say it out loud. We can't just keep our heads down and hope that we'll be left alone by the world because clearly that's not the path for any of us. So a part of the reason that we're, we're talking about these things is to hopefully embolden some more people to say, you know what, I can actually say this. And if it goes well, okay. And if it goes poorly, well, that's that's a blessing from God too. We, we take the good with the bad because we trust that we belong to God and he'll take care of us no matter what. Search the land, the labyrinths of the forests, to the edge of within. Only the Grail can redeem us. Search. Found it, the Grail. It's me, Percival. We will never find it.
for it too, but they weren't good enough. My lovely, clever boy. You have crossed the great wasteland. You are burning with thirst. Drink. For ten years and a day you have searched. Is it so long? And tell me. Have you found what you seek? I found nothing but sorrow and death. And I never thought to hear laughter again. Till I saw this boy. And he promised me the grave. Is it here? You have searched too hard. <laughs> Take your ease. Drink and join with me. no grail as these good knights have found. They serve me instead. There are many pleasures in the world, many cups to drink from, and they shall all be yours. Drink. He's no good, mother. Take him to the tree.
the secret of the Grail. Who does it serve? in my grasp. I failed. I failed. You are the last of us. Try again. I'm not worthy. You must. You must. That's all I have.
is the secret of the Grail. Who does it serve? You, my lord. Who am I? You are my lord and king. Your Arthur. Have you found the secret that I have lost? Yes. You and the land are one. and you will be reborn in the land with you. Ready my knights for battle. They will ride with their king once more. I've lived through others far too long. Lancelot carried my honor, and Guinevere my guilt. Mordred bore my sins. My knights have fought my causes. Now, my brother, I shall be king. Gods! Knights! Squires, prepare for battle. 